Digital Drift, episode 10, recorded Wednesday, 2nd of April, 2014, Spider-Man. Who am I? You sure you want to know? If somebody told you I was just your average, ordinary guy, not a care in the world, somebody lied. Truth is... It wasn't always like this. There was a time when life was a lot less complicated. Can I take your picture for the school paper? Sure. In this lab, we have 15 genetically enhanced super spiders. There's 14. One's missing. Peter, are you alright? I'm fine. Pete, look, you're changing. I know I went through exactly the same thing at your age. No, not exactly. Wow. Peter, may I introduce my father, Norman Osborne? Great honor to meet you, sir. Harry tells me you're quite the science whiz. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Whatever it is, somebody has to stop it. With great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift. Wow. It is my curse. Who are you? Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture. Welcome to the Digital Drift. Welcome to a show about a superhero movie as equally significant as its hero. The 1978 Superman and 1989 Batman films each had cemented the most popular DC heroes in box office history, and each were followed by three progressively more dismal sequels. 1998's Blade was the pilot that proved a Marvel property could be popular with adults, and 2000's X-Men illustrated that a comic book hero movie could be released to critical acclaim and excellent box office. But it was Spider-Man that first provided the world with the superhero blockbuster, a model that has dominated the multiplex ever since. So, a little history. As with Hulk, Iron Man, Thor, Fantastic Four, X-Men, Daredevil and the Avengers, Spider-Man originally emerged in the very short span of creativity years at Marvel that would define the Marvel superhero for the 20th century. Again, it was Stan Lee and Steve Ditko who came up with him for a one-shot story in Amazing Fantasy number 15 in August 1962 that ultimately proved so popular with letter-writing comic book fans that the Amazing Spider-Man book followed not long after in March of 1963. That book went on to this day, maintaining a complicated continuity which always seemed to allow the writers to relocate, if not reboot, the character, even as he aged, always back to the same tenuous situation of having to juggle his personal and superhero life, more so, arguably, than any other costumed crime fighter, and thus the basis of his everlasting appeal. Kids love him because he's brightly coloured, dynamic, funny, and a mixture of vulnerable, agile, lucky and unlucky. Teenagers like him because they can relate to his romantic issues and inner turmoil. 
adults like him because we can relate to somebody who has to juggle so many things and for whom nothing ever seems to go right for for long. He's not some billionaire prick like Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark. He's not some super genius like Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark or Reed Richards or Bruce Banner. He's not an intergalactic policeman like the Green Lantern or Nova. He's not some unkillable god like Superman, Thor, Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel. Peter always seems to have a job he's just about to be fired from, a spouse whom he worries about and doesn't spend enough time with, bills coming in and no money to pay for them, ageing relatives and a close cluster of friends that he cares for desperately and not enough time in the day to manage all of them. Plus, he's Spider-Man. This last part is incidental, and when Spidey stories are well written, they work on their own as drama without the costume making an appearance. Lizard Man! That's right. Soon all mankind will tremble at my name. With that serum, I will create a reptile army that will take over the world. Not if I can help it. The speed of a super lizard is greater than yours, Spider-Man. My first step in ruling the world is to get rid of you. That lizard character's more mixed up than I thought. Are you hurt? Only my pride. That's the second time he's knocked me cold. I'm going out there and find him. This time, I'll give him a taste of my cure for lizards. He's out to create a savage reptile army, and I've got to stop him. But how? With this. Look after your mom, Billy. Since 1962, he has appeared in nine animated shows. The 1967 original, two series in 1981, one simply called Spider-Man and the other Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, Iceman and the Forgotten Mutant Firestar. The 1994 show, which ran for five seasons and managed to cover most of his core storylines and scenarios to that point, remains beloved by fans to this day. That was followed by a short-lived Spider-Man Unlimited series, which propelled our hero into a future alternate dimensional alien planet beset by symbiotes. Obviously, the radically different setting didn't help this gain tenure, and it was cancelled after 13 episodes. Following this movie, there were three attempts at an animated show. The first in 2003, called Spider-Man, the new animated series, rather riskily based itself in the movie universe, which meant Spidey couldn't really meet Doc Ock or Venom or Sandman or really progress with MJ or Harry or Gwen, should she appear, because they couldn't contradict the ongoing continuity. It was also computer-animated in a style which many found off-putting. That was cancelled after 13 episodes. In 2008, following Spider-Man 3, came Spectacular Spider-Man. Now, I want to talk about this in more depth later, and it may even get its own show, because it's my favourite depiction of the Spider-Man story and character on screen, small or big, or the printed page. I'm here to see Mr. Lincoln. Then you should make an appointment. But perhaps we'll make an exception for the hero of the day. I am L. Thompson Lincoln. Please, you're the big man. In my life, I've been called many names. My favorite is Tombstone. Back off. I just took down the rhino. A pale guy in a suit doesn't sleep. Don't move. Just listen, and I'll teach you the facts of life. The big man, whomever he might be, has nothing against heroes. No hero can thwart enough crime to dent his income. But you, you frighten criminals off the street entirely, except when you're off battling the likes of the rhino, 
than the big band's profitable army of petty thugs think themselves beneath the Spider-Man's notice. So, as long as I keep fighting crime, you'll keep making bigger and badder... Now you're learning. But there is a way out. Come work for me. You can still save the world like a good hero. I'll even pay you. All you have to remember is to look the other way on occasion. On any occasion I choose. I can't ever look the other way again. Let's finish this. Ah, if you insist. Officers, Spider-Man has trespassed on my property, assaulted my employees, and threatened my person. Wait! You can't listen to him. He's the bad guy. He's... Freeze, Spider-Man. You're under... ran from the cops before, and this reeks. I've won all the battles and never came close to winning the war. The tombstone did make one mistake. Now I know there is a war, so bring it on. Created by Greg Wiesman of Gargoyles and Young Justice, it combines the energy and wit of the Ultimate Spider-Man comic series with the classic Stan Lee and Steve Ditko Parker in high school, with all his many relationship issues and troubles. It has surprisingly dazzling action, more surprising emotional moments, tells the best version of the Venom saga, and of course, it was cancelled after just 26 episodes. (sighs) What replaced it was Ultimate Spider-Man, which was ironically not Ultimate. It's not going to be the last one, it's certainly not the best one, but it's ironically less like the Bendis comic series than its predecessor, despite being written and created by Bendis. To date, Ultimate is still going, supervised by Man of Action, the collective group responsible for Ben 10 and Generator Rex, along with Paul Dini, one of the key creators of Batman the Animated Series. You would think that this was a recipe for animation perfection. However, the focus is on action and rapid-fire juvenile and wacky humour with self-contained and inconsequential episodes rather than overarching story. Most people I know who've seen this don't like it, but none more than me, as it represents such a feeble substitute for the spectacular spectacular. Incidentally, Peter is voiced by Drake Bell, who played the equally feeble mock Spider-Man Dragonfly in the appalling superhero movie. On the bright side, season three will see Spidey finally join the Avengers. Unfortunately, it's the crap Avengers from Avengers Assemble, the dismally dull show that replaced the excellent Earth's Mightiest Heroes. We watched a few episodes of Ultimate this morning, didn't we? Did you like it? No. (laughs) Why not? What are your initial impressions of this show? It just seemed to be Uh, eye candy. They'd gone for something which they appeared to think was visually interesting, although it wasn't really. The animation is nothing special. Um, There didn't seem to be any particular style to it, which Spectacular had in spades. That was one of the things I really liked about it, was that it was they had a very specific visual style. The emotional punch of any given situation is always always undermined with some kind of um, gag or, you know, something designed to puncture the balloon of any semblance of tension and just deflate it completely. So the fucking show sucks and it's going to go on and on and on. Indeed. It was all these animated appearances, however daft or pointless or brilliant, that cemented Spidey in the hearts and minds of many generations of kids over the past 50 years. 
For nearly everyone listening, he was there when we were a toddler, before we could comprehend that there was even a normal guy under the mask, that red and blue costume with the intricate webbing and big white eyes was there, always standing up to big hulking bullies with obviously misused destructive powers, always protecting innocent bystanders and always escaping serious injury by the skin of his teeth. More importantly than his iconic status, however, in contributing to the phenomenal popularity of this movie was the time it was released. May 2002 was just eight months after 9-11. New York needed reminding that it was a great place to be with good, average people. America needed reminding of heroes in a stylized context after months of seeing the real-life heroes digging through the rubble for survivors. The world was suffering the repercussions of a truly successful terror campaign that left much of the USA scared, vulnerable, hostile and heading towards war. Special effects had just reached the point where what went on in animation was possible to portray in live action. And at that exact moment, what the world wanted to see was heroes fighting villains and succeeding, saving the day against all odds and maintaining their course despite suffering the consequences. The Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter received similar bursts of goodwill and repeated box office successes and ensured that the heroic age was truly upon us. It has taken 12 years since then to ease into more of an exploration of what lies below the surface of that somewhat idealised worldview, but the original Spider-Man remains the flagship title that heralded the true beginning of this golden age. Okay, so we've got a lot of bullet points to get through and uh, a lot of discussion to be had about this film. You haven't seen it for a while, have you? No. I saw it again last week uh, just to sort of prep myself for this and the departure from uh, what we've been experiencing with the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe and even technically with the X-Men films uh, is is quite pronounced. Uh, We'll start with the risk of hiring Sam Raimi because this was, they could easily have gone with Chris Columbus or pressured Spielberg into doing this one. This was a big one for, for Sony to actually bank on and it actually is parallel with New Line hiring Peter Jackson. Because this was a guy who cut his teeth doing growy horror movies. And then after those horror movies did sort of oddities and uh, um, you know, thrillers and you know, small-scale, low-budget, fairly ignorable fare. Everyone always cites Evil Dead for Sam Raimi. And they go, oh, it wasn't this a massive achievement for this first one. I, I always personally preferred Evil Dead 2. I think it balances the comedy and horror much better than the first and third ones. And uh, in, in fact, it balances the... Uh, uh, extremes a little bit better than the Spider-Man films. Before that, he did uh, a very small film called Within the Woods, which is basically what the Evil Dead uh, became. And then after that, he did Dark Man, The Quick and the Dead, A Simple Plan for Love of the Game, and The Gift. These were not huge films. They didn't set the world on fire. And so when you said Sam Raimi, people were huh? Sam Raimi, Evil Dead? Oh, yeah, Sam Raimi, Evil Dead. Then he got the Spider-Man gig, and since then, he's done Drag Me to Hell, and Oz the Great and Powerful. I'm going to go out on a limb and actually say that Sam Raimi, when he doesn't try, can be downright shit. He is not a uh, 100% assured director. There are, there are times when he is lazy. There are times when he he sort of coasts through and, and delivers a perfunctory film. Even the good two Spider-Man films are definitely patchy, and we'll be talking about that uh, as we go for the next couple of episodes. This is not going to be a glowing We Love Spider-Man review. Neither is it going to be a bashing contest where we uh, rip into this and, 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 and try to tear down this sacred cow. We'll... Talk about the good and the bad. 
I will say, however, that what, whatever we think about the Spider-Man films now, whatever we think, Sam Raimi was absolutely the guy to deliver this film at absolutely the right time, and what he did was absolute gold for the superhero genre. So whether we have personal preference issues with it is kind of beside the point. It absolutely worked, and good things came of it. To a degree, he almost killed it as well. Before Iron Man came along, in 2007, we had X-Men 3 and uh, Spider-Man 3 closing out what seemed like the end of superhero movies because they had run their course. You could say it's a prime example of that know when to take the drawing away from the kid. Yes, yes it is. It's something that Donald Sutherland says in Six Degrees of Separation. This is what I dreamt. I didn't dream so much as realize this. I feel so close to the paintings. I'm not just selling like pieces of meat. And I remembered why I loved paintings in the first place, what had got me into this. I thought, dreamt. Remembered how easy it is for a painter to lose a painting. He paints and paints, works on a canvas for months, and then one day he loses it, loses the structure, loses the sense of it. You lose the painting. I remember asking my kid's second grade teacher, why are all your students geniuses? Look at the first grade, blotches of green and black, the third grade camouflage. But your grade, the second grade, Matisse is everyone. You've made my child a Matisse. Let me study with you. Let me into the second grade. What is your secret? I don't have any secret. I just know when to take their drawings away from them.
So the film starts off with a score from Danny Elfman, and this is something that binds the films together. Lyra noted while we were watching um, number three, oh, it's just the same music, which is both good and bad. It's good because it makes it brings a consistency to the trilogy, and you feel like you're watching one story play itself out over three acts. Um, and it's bad because Danny Elfman himself became very lazy, and he his second score for uh, Spider-Man 2 is just a rehash of this one and he didn't even turn up for the third one he, they just provided the same um, Spider-Man score and somebody else reorchestrated it and provided their own occasionally quite accomplished but ultimately not massively memorable score there is something else very significant about having Elfman do it as well um, and between the um, uh, the cobweb imagery in the intro sequence and Elfman's music it's got a strong link to to, um, Tim Burton, which gives you a link back to the comic book world of Batman that had already been established. And they absolutely wanted to have that same level of hit on their hands as they did with, the, with as Warner Brothers did with the 1989 Batman. Absolutely. So although there hadn't been that many comic book worlds brought to the big screen so far, they, I think they were making a conscious attempt to um, connect this one with them rather than start from scratch. Yeah. And Superman as well. We can't uh, forget how massively important and uh, influential Superman was on this. Mm, yeah, and it, it continues forward as well. This um, the the uh, the sequence of the lines of the plan that carry on through this one. You've got the webs, you've got the blood vessels and the mm. blueprints for the goblin costume. And that is replicated, whether consciously or unconsciously, in the X-Men intro sequences with the where you're going through all the DNA structures. X-Men came before this, so if, effectively this is aping X-Men's DNA thingy. But uh, this was replicated in Hulk, this was replicated in Daredevil. It's If you think about it, the end of Avengers has this kind of sort of zooming in close on the, uh, on the various artefacts connected with the heroes. Mm. But if you, if you look at linking uh, superheroes back into this idea of this is our mythology, this mm. is our modern mythology, what these sequences are basically saying is they are woven into the fabric of everything. Yeah. Again, whether they're saying that intentionally or not is another matter, but I, I, that's how I would interpret them. So, yeah, the um, initial the theme by Danny Elfman is absolutely iconic. Well, I think when I first saw it, uh, I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. That's kind of hummable. It, it feels like um, the Batman theme, less gothic, more clockwork, if that makes sense. It's got that kind of scuttling spider uh, underscoring to it. Unfortunately every bit of music that Danny Elfman produced in these past 15 years or so sounds exactly the same as this score. So not only do the Spider-Man films all feel the same, everything scored by Danny Elfman does, except for Big Fish, where he actually tried. So we start off and finish the film with narration. It's not actually narrated the whole way through. I do occasionally wonder what would it would have been like had it been narrated the whole way through by Maguire. But it always annoyed and struck me as odd when he starts off saying, Who am I? You sure you want to know? If somebody told you I was just your average ordinary guy, not a care in the world... Somebody lied. You sure you want to know? The story of my life is not for the faint of heart. If somebody told you it was a happy tale, if somebody said I was just your average guy, not a care in the world, somebody lied. 
who the fuck would say that about Spider-Man? Like, the first thing you know about Spider-Man after you realize there's a guy in the suit when you're a toddler is that his life is hard. This is a ridiculous way to start Spider-Man. It doesn't break the film, but it is baffling the way it starts. It's almost like having X-Men start with Charles Xavier saying, Mutants, we are new to the planet. And if somebody told you that we have great fun with our powers, somebody lied. <laughs> who, who the fuck said that? That doesn't, that doesn't really scan. You could argue that it's... It's kind of putting a message in there to people who'd glanced once or twice at wisecracking animated shows in the past. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's a direct um, response to, to him, life is a great big bang up. Wherever there's a hang up, you'll find a Spider-Man. Because (laughs) in the 60s, he seemed to be some sort of more of a swinging hepcat. And might I add, that fucking Spider-Man theme from the 60s TV show, it's iconic, yeah, and it's an earworm and it sticks in your head, but my God, do they riff on that throughout all of these movies. You've got... Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches thieves just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bud, he's got radioactive blood. Can you swing from a thread? Take a look overhead. Hey there, there goes the Spider-Man. In the chill of night, at the scene of a crime, like a streak of light. Just in time, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, welcome fame, he's ignored, action is his reward, to him, life is a great big bang-up, wherever there's a hang-up, you'll find the Spider-Man. Fucking Aerosmith sing it at the end. Spider-Man, Spider-Man. You've got the busker who sings in this one. Dresses like a spider, looks like a bug. Him. Finishes on the literal theme from out of the 60s TV show. Okay, so that's three times in the first film alone. In the second film, you've got the uh, Asian lady with the uh, violin singing a Spider-Man, a Spider-Man twice. And you've got Michael Bublé. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size. Catches thieves just like flies. Look out! Here comes a Spider-Man. Iron Man had this twice, and in a relatively subtle way. You've got the Vegas-themed... And Tony's ringtone is that, with a sort of a bleepy Iron Man theme. And that's it. That's all you really need. They... Fucking lean on it way too much in this series. It's like, oh yeah, you remember that. There have been other incarnations of Spider-Man since the 67 TV show. There's so much variety out there. And it's emblematic of their obsession with 60s Peter that they keep riffing on this theme. And he is very 60s. Oh yes. 
It is a stylized cartoon world. This is really, really obvious when you've actually been watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're living in a honey-coated, cheesecloth place where reds are bright red, greens are bright green, blues are bright blue, the sky is always clear. It's a far, far cry from the grim and murky world shown in Amazing Spider-Man. And the cartoon characters, effectively. It's, a, it's, it's not so much a comic as uh, an animated show. I think what they've been trying to do to an extent works. Um, it, this was the first time actually watching it where it struck me that the tone does evoke that kind of kids 80s sci-fi movie. Um, the one that kept coming back to my mind was Flight of the Navigator. It has a little bit of a Back to the Future feel as well. Mm, yeah, just just in the way people interact with each other, not necessarily in the setting or anything like that, but there's just something about it that it wouldn't feel out of place in that world. And I think uh, the the timing of it comes down uh, to, to a great deal of this, um, which obviously we're going to discuss later. And it is charming as well. You can't de- deny that it has a certain... It, it's a, it's a likeable, safe world to be uh, dumped in where um, uh, any danger is clearly flagged with... Goblin music, and then... Everything is with broad brushstrokes. And I'm going to go ahead and say you would have difficulty doing a film like this today and getting people to reabsorb themselves back into this world now that there's been so much... Uh, since then, uh, and so much which actually uh, hits more of a balance between Nolan's super realistic Dark Knight and this one's super stylized Spider-Man. Although they do still try and get away with it was the capitalist with the shifty eyes. Yeah, but Peter Parker, oh. Now, when I first saw this film, I, Tobey Maguire was very much on side because I'd seen Pleasantville fairly recently, and uh, it was 1998, I think. And he plays pretty much the same character. But as time has gone on, I've realized that that's not necessarily a Peter Parker that... Well, no, it it was a great Peter Parker for the world to be presented with. But there isn't even the slightest amount of realism there. There isn't the slightest amount of truth there. This guy is a geek in a way that nobody was a geek in 2002. He's a geek in a way that even the 60s Peter Parker would go, whoa. We went back and read Amazing Fantasy 15, and Peter is this clueless, socially inept kid in the 60s, and everyone's like, ah, puny Parker, tell it to the Atom Smashers. But even then, he's got this this anger beneath the surface. This guy, Maguire manages to hit this really uneasy balance between 10-year-old boy and 60-year-old man. But never do I believe him as a teenager or a man. And that's throughout all three films. I think the issue for me with this portrayal of of Peter, and that's not taking into account how the character may go throughout the next two films, which I have yet to sit down and watch again and and really take apart. Um, But he doesn't change. He doesn't evolve in any way he's utterly oblivious pretty much from start to finish there is a very very slight upturn in the last scene literally the last scene Mm. um but apart from that he's it's 
self-centered is not quite the term that I want to use, but he literally does not seem to comprehend the existence of any emotional state other than his own. Like I said, 10-year-old and 60-year-old means that he doesn't have the emotional range of an adult, um, and he sees things in a very simple way, in the way that little kids do, but also in a way that old people do who don't really want to know about the complexities of the world because it's scary for them. And because the he way- was raised by old people, that's some, like that's like taken hold of his attitudes, and he's he's like an escapee from Pleasantville. It's, it, you know, he, he walks around with this uh, kind of, in this kind of daze, sort of wondering how and why the world works like it does. And the only reason that he is not like in stark contrast to the rest of the world is that the rest of the world's kind of stylized as well, but not as much as him. But if you look at the way that that David evolves as a character in Pleasantville, Mm. the whole point of that is he pretends to go along with the simplistic two-dimensional atmosphere of the world, but inadvertently he ends up bringing dimension and um, emotion and involvement to that world and gradually um, taking that on board himself. He changes um, as much as everybody else does from beginning to end of that film. Um, it's, it's like they've taken Bud and then not done anything with him. And because um, his interactions with May and, and Ben, who he's obviously learned this from, because that is their perspective on life, because that's all set up as isn't this a wonderful, charmed existence to, to live, it's the fact that, that the... Um, uh, the spider bite causes him to lose all that by throwing him into um, the, the dangerous situations. If that spider bite had never happened and he'd been allowed to carry on being Peter Parker, living with May and Ben, and everything had gone wonderfully and, and Ben had never been shot and his life had gone on as it was supposed to do, then um, that would have been perfect and that would have been marvellously ideal and he would have grown up untouched and undamaged and completely, utterly oblivious about everything everything else that happens in the world and there's nothing to me in the rest of the film that really gives any multi-dimension to that because it's narrated by peter because you see everything through his eyes because you get everything through his filter there's never really any opportunity for anyone else to explore the depths and the dimensions mm. i mean he he begins the tale by saying like so many other stories this is about a girl the girl next door this story is not about mj this is about peter and Peter's idealization of MJ. We'll go into MJ at some point soon. Phrasing. Phrasing. More on MJ in a bit. cut to the metamorphosis and the uh, him him actually becoming spider-man because this film is basically amazing fantasy number 15 which is the first appearance of spider-man and explaining how he got his powers and for the second half amazing spider-man number 121 and 122 which should have been the death of gwen stacy but isn't the the whole uh, kidnapping MJ and taking her to the uh, George Washington Bridge and holding her up and having her screaming like that um, that's riffing on on one twenty one where Goblin knocks Gwen off and kills her even if nine eleven hadn't just happened the world wasn't ready for a Spider Man 
whose heroine dies in the first film at the very end and the ending is an incredibly downbeat this is what happens if you actually put yourself out there but with 9-11 they really couldn't do that they had to show a bittersweet ending MJ lives, Peter carries on but everything about this and leading up to it is the scenario regarding Gwen Stacy so it's all this cautionary tale of this is what happens when your uh, secret identity is known as a superhero and the repercussions are he has to cut MJ off that's how they change the core of that story and that's not necessarily a bad thing at all and the world needed this version of the ending time will tell if they do that in Amazing rather than it being a radioactive spider that gives Peter his um, powers I think even little kids know right now that if a a spider gets blasted with radiation and then bites you what will actually happen is cancer or at least just you'll get sick your hair will fall out and you may die terrible radiation poisoning Uh, but uh, yeah no that's that's what happened in the original one because back in 62 everyone was fascinated by the power of the atom and that's how the X-Men hence I was just going to say hence the mutants yeah yeah Um, and you know back in those days in comics which by the way were written and this is very important to understand these comics were written in a few days with just ideas pouring out of Stan Lee's head They didn't know back then that in 50 years' time, there'd be some of the biggest movies of all time, following decades' worth of comic sales and animated shows and action figures. They didn't know. So the logic that those original comics go by is fine for those original comics. But seeing that logic played out on screen in the 2002 movie is head-slappingly baffling. But again, it's kind of part of the stylized world. You go along with it. It's comic booky. It's less pronounced comic booky than Ang Lee's Hulk, where he's like, hey, Fox, it's literally a comic. They do have a tendency to fill the gaps in with exposition. In this. That was one of that was yeah. one of the first things that hit me about the um, uh, the introduction of um, May and Ben. Actually, they stood there having this conversation it's about how he's who been, they are. He's been laid off from the electrical plant, and I'm sat there thinking, unless it happened this morning, she knows all this. Why are they having to have this discussion? The one, the first proper nod to this actually being a little darker than than the uh, rosy world we've seen so far is the metamorphosis while Peter's in his room at night, and he's, he looks like a, a smackhead or that he's on crystal meth. It's sort of this shivering, pallid creature hunched up on the floor, covered in sores. Probably more likely with a radioactive spider bite, actually. Yeah. Uh, but then the actual uh, uh, the morning after, and he's fine. It's actually a reference to big. When Josh is looking at himself in the mirror and, of course, both of them steal a look at their penis, which we are to believe, in this case, grew bigger in the night. I mean, that's inferred, right? Does that right? happen with spiders? It, it is inferred. It is, it is implied. That is implied. Well, I inferred it. Is that what you'd do? Check my penis. Mm. I mean, not... Not second thing. Possibly to make sure it hadn't fallen off. He flexes <laughs> and then he checks the old tadger. <laughs> despite the fact that anything that could give you those muscles overnight would probably have the reverse effect on the wedding tackle oh yeah it'd be like steroids mm-hmm. so basically his his balls would retreat inside his body sex is not really a a, a vital um part of the spider component of the, the spider existence no, it, it's quite dangerous actually absolutely likelihood of having head bitten off pretty high Male spiders get killed left, right, and centre from engaging in that. That's why they need a super strong spider penis. 
so they can do it from way over the other side of the room. Anyway. That way. So then he, in, in one of the better sequences in the film, I, I say better, this film is actually really accomplished in terms of structure. It's, it's a, a straight, it's, it's how you do an origin story. It's, it's kind of classic now. It's not a lean story, but it is very much, uh, what, what feels like a story unfolding so that by the end you're like, right, now he's Spider-Man, that all made sense. Despite the fact that much of it doesn't actually make sense. It's quite a good magic trick. It looks uncomplicated and there's very little to get confused about. Yeah. Um, but there are things that if you engage more than a quarter of your brain, then it will start going, uh, hang, on. hang on a minute. <laughs> right. Prime example of this, actually, and this is this is kind of juxtaposed with um, Peter's metamorphosis is um, Norman's insistence on taking the um, the goblin. Oz. Serum, the uh, the performance enhancers. Um, so they have this whole setup um, with this incredibly exciting looking lab. That would also um, shrink his penis. It's very likely. Um, with sort of, there is a bit of a Hollywood habit of making science look incredibly fast paced and adrenaline packed, which it's not really. I mean. <laughs> Once you're getting into things like explosives and, and detonations and very dangerous chemicals, I'm sure there is quite a lot of, of tension and if we get this wrong, then everybody will die. But because if you get this wrong, everybody will die, what doesn't happen in science is what Norman says, sometimes in science you have to take risks. No, you really don't. I mean, maybe with the theory side of things, yes, you you kind of have to hang your balls out there and, and come up with ideas that, that people wouldn't necessarily think of straight away. You have to be able to, to think outside the box and have a more diverse perspective on, on your ideas. But when you're at the human testing stage, I would humbly suggest that risky behaviour is not something you really want to engage in. I think he's getting uh, – it's it's a mixed message – it's breakthrough stage that you have to take the risks. Yeah. He's mashing together the breakthrough stage and the human testing stage. Absolutely. Which That's even if everything die. went swimmingly, even if he got exactly the results that he wanted, anybody with half an ounce of academic salt would look at the paperwork on that and go... It's dreadfully well, unethical. This is, A, it's dreadfully unethical and therefore we have to disregard all of your work. B, you've done one test. There is no control element yeah. to this. This needs to be like 20 people. It needs to basically yeah. be like what they did with... Um, uh, extremis. Oh, seven of them blew up. <laughs> <laughs> and that was even with the peer review. <laughs> yeah. Also, the, it, it seems the, the general uh, says, what do you think, one doctor? And all the other doctors have signed off it, and this one cringing creep goes, uh, no, we got to go back to formula. Well, why? Okay, we had this entire thing resting on this one doctor. I do like the fact that Norman keeps the whole back to formula thing sort of buried inside his head and then it explodes out of him at that point where he loses everything. That all kind of makes sense and it does all fit with the idea that Norman is this very unstable character anyway and that, that basically, it well, it's the super soldier serum, isn't it? It enhances what's already there. Yeah. Norman is a controlling, demanding, self-obsessed, self-interested, desperate man who is repeatedly frustrated by uh, the attempts of his 
board who can outvote him on decisions within his own company, which is demonstrated later. Um, I'm guessing this is not the first time they've nipped him in the bud on things that he's tried to do. And so the performance enhancers allow him to uh, get creative with that. So all of that fits. In the general scheme of villains and, and antagonists in comic book movies, he's in the upper section in terms of the fact that they've, they've endeavoured to show that he was a man. He wasn't just cackling maniacally the whole time. In fact, the cackling maniacally thing comes out of the goblin persona, and he's just an angry man otherwise. But I suppose it's kind of like Two-Face in that that stuff's all in there. It just needs to be brought out by a break in psychosis. Click on it. <laughs> Unf- Will you stop with that? It's Unf- really freaky. Unfortunately, folks, uh, the fact that it was Willem Dafoe and the fact that the now this I can fap to meme has prevailed so much on the internet. I think that's from Speed 2. But yeah, he may not be the best choice of villain in terms of how overblown he is. Anyway, uh, so Peter discovers his powers each in turn. Uh, you've, got, you've got the uh, spider sense, which he uh, discovers by Mary Jane almost falling over a bit. Um, I do like the fact that he sort of does a wall run before he goes to school. That's neat. And then you've got the agility where he catches her, and then those two things are tested in a combat scenario, uh, along with strength when he's fighting Flash, who, by the way, is not even a character in this. He's sort of a character in Amazing, but um, none of the cinematic versions of Flash Thompson come close to the bully who's actually kind of a doofus, who's actually kind of harmless, who actually kind of loves Spider-Man, who's actually kind of pitiful, who's actually a little bit likable in other better versions of uh, the Spider-Man mythos, including Spectacular Spider-Man. Even I like Flash in Spectacular. There there are tiny little hints of that in... um... Amazing. Amazing, um, in that Flash seems to be a complete coward and everybody just keeps telling him to get out of the way and hide when anything bad's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the actual, the fighting, uh, it's, it's, it's matrixy, let's face it. And um, we'll, we'll talk about this when we do the uh, Matrix films, but the Matrix films were the ones that gave license to the superhero genre. They did superheroes because of the Matrix. Who am I? You sure you want to know? Then we get the wall crawling and the jumping, at which point both of us went, ooh, because millennial rubber right there. My God. CGI is bad. And not just the CG either. There's a composite shot of him running across rooftops. And I I don't know whether it's because we were watching it in Blu-ray, but it was really, really harsh for a 2002 film. Well, 2001 it was filmed. Yeah. but yeah, for a 21st century film, it looked bad. Yeah, um, it, it's it, the actual Spidey stuff. Once he's rendered in in the uh, costume, basically once he gets the costume back, all the effects of Spidey are pretty much on the money. But everything before then, when it's just Peter bouncing around all over the place and um, uh, Peter in his uh, proto Spider costume, cringeworthy. He's, I personally think he still looks a bit soft around the joints um, in the costume. Uh, it, it, what kept popping into my mind most of all was, do you remember those, um, uh, like, fabric Spider-Man figures that had <laughs> wire in the arms and you could bend them into various positions? Yeah, and then, yeah. you know, if you attached a thread to the top of his head and swung him around a bit, that was kind of what it would look like. Yeah. 
Um, and then you get to the whole bit with the web shooters. Now, let's not talk too long about web shooters. It comes down to this. Comic fans lost their shit when they ha- found out about organic web shooters. And movie fans lost their shit when they found out about gadget web shooters from Amazing. When it comes down to it, neither makes sense, folks. He produces too much fluid to conceal, even in microscopic form, and to be able to use in any kind, with any degree of reliability from either his body or from a gadget. There's, it's just too many variables. But in terms of the web shooters thing, he should have great big separating pustules of web fluid just oscillating on his forearms all the time. Technically, he should have a great big abdomen and fire the webs out of his arse. With the web shooters, he orders the web stuff in bulk from Oscorp. This is trackable. They go to the trouble in Batman Begins of saying, let's order six million of these stupid ears. That way we'll be able to cover our tracks. This is something that, you know, once he starts using this in abundance, pe- the people at Oscorp will just go, right, this Spider-Man clearly using our technology. We found bits of it all over the place. Let's just, uh, uh, Peter Parker. It's on the fucking, it's on the address that we sent all of these, these web cartridges to, which, by the way, we have to keep sending him every week, unless he's synthesizing it, in which case, either way, none of it works. But it didn't work in the 60s when it's like, and I came up with the idea of web fluid. And it doesn't work now. But the way it's presented is almost simply as a gag to fit in with the Peter can't cope with being an adolescent thing. As in he's spraying his bedroom with sticky white fluid? Uh, Yes. And when he's on the roof firing these little squirts of white into the atmosphere. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And then that kind of ties in with two when his stress and depression stop them working. Talk about that in two. I have never been given a good argument for why web shooters work at all, in which case a bad argument will suffice. Mm. He's Spider-Man, therefore he has web shooters. Absolutely, yeah. And until we can find a fucking Christopher Nolan way of explaining this shit, uh, and even then it's going to be so round the horn that it, it's almost not really worth it when it comes down to it. it he's got web shooters it's a stylized universe even in the realistic one the bit when he re- thinks that it's something to do with what he says is great fun go web fly up up and away web shazam go 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 web go at one point he says shazam which is a funny little nod to the DC Captain Marvel who I believe is now simply called shazam that turns up again in Spider-Man 3. He sort of jumps up on the stage and goes, Shazam! Ah, that's one Shazam too many, folks. The flame-on thing? I don't know. I think at that point they were, this was um, just at the dawn of the uh, heroic age and they, there was just a, a, a dearth of, um, is, it, is that, is dearth not enough? Dearth is complete lack of. Okay. There was a dearth of superhero movies yet to be realised. Did that work? No. No. There was a girth of superheroes yet to be realized. <laughs> okay, which brings us to the great power and great responsibility speech, which is something that I believe was in Ultimate Spider-Man, the comic, um, which came just before this, but not enough time to really influence the film, and wasn't in the original comic, at least it wasn't in uh, Amazing Fantasy number 15, and it wasn't in uh, the uh, animated series, as I recall, Um The power and responsibility being bestowed upon him by Uncle Ben is majorly down to this movie and that being a thing. 
And there were a lot of fans of uh, these movies who were raging at Amazing for not saying the exact words. See, I think it's it's got to have been said somewhere in that context because um, what it made me think of most of all was Teen Wolf. Yeah, which was and that is inspired it is by delivered Spider-Man. exactly, and it is delivered to Scott by his father. In a, in a situation almost exactly like that, that he, you know, he has strength that he's not going to understand and, and he needs to take responsibility for Does that. Does Jason Bateman get a similar speech from his uncle, the same guy? Do you know, I can't remember. I remember so little about it. Uh, as I told you, cousin, being a wolf, <laughs> responsibility and all that. Now go do the same thing again, but with boxing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. That's, that's my original Spider-Man movie is Teen Wolf. Yeah. Thanks for the ride, Uncle. Oh, wait a minute, Peter. We uh, we need to talk. Well, we can talk later. Well, we can talk now. If you let me. But what do we have to talk about? Why now? Because we haven't talked at all for so long. Your Aunt May and I don't even know who you are anymore. You shirk your chores. You you have all those weird experiments in, in your in your room. You you start fights at school. We I don't didn't know. start that fight. I told you that. Yeah, well, you sure as hell finished. What was I supposed to do, run away? No, no, you're not supposed to run away, but... Pete, look, you're changing. I know, I went through exactly the same thing at your age. No, not exactly. Peter, these are the years when a man changes into the man he's going to become the rest of his life. Just be careful who you change into. This guy, Flash Thompson, he probably deserved what happened. But just because you can beat him up doesn't give you the right to. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Are you afraid that I'm going to turn into some kind of criminal? Quit worrying about me, okay? Something's different. I'll figure it out. Stop lecturing me, please. I don't mean to lecture and I don't mean to preach. And I know I'm not your father. Then stop pretending to be. Right. I'll pick you up here at 10. It's a lovely scene, and uh, although it is corny and cheesy, uh, there is a lot of resonance with this, and it does get to the core of the character. And Cliff Robertson, as Uncle Ben, delivers it with conviction, which is doubly impactful because he'd not really been in much before or after this. So it's, he just seems to have come out of nowhere with this one. He was Obviously, he's been acting since 1943. He wasn't a well-known actor, not in the same way that, that Martin Sheen was. I mean, it, it is one of the handful of scenes um, that does actually um, outline Peter's emotional obliviousness, that yeah. he is... Again, it, it comes back to this idea of him dealing with uh, adolescence and him having this very typical teenage attitude which is a horrible way of phrasing it because but but basically there's so much going on in your life and changing in your brain and in your body at that time it's really really hard to have any room left any capacity left to understand anybody else's emotions Mm. but he's like a special kind of not understanding Oblivious. I mean, the, the fact that he, he witnesses this horrible uh, scene of abuse between Mary Jane and her father, the, the verbal um, shit that he throws at her as she walks out the door, 
Which must have happened again and again and again and again. Absolutely. And Peter's response to this is to semi-normalise it. He he basically is like, well, you know, uh, my aunt and uncle can scream at each other pretty good. It's not the same thing, Peter. Are Even you in fucking your kidding me? You must understand it's not the same thing. When he sees her on the street, on when they're walking out to school, and she's in uh, emotional she's, turmoil at this exactly. Point. And he stood there trying to work out chat up lines. You can't even go over there and say, "Hey, MJ, are you okay, buddy?" It's Just relate to her as a person, not a symbol. Absolutely, he's he's totally idealizing her at that point to the the extent that he is utterly ignorant of what's right in front of his eyes, and that makes him a very difficult uh, representation to get behind. It's not really the character. A lot of this comes down to Maguire's uh, performance here, and it's I find it very very frustrating in that. I'm watching him. I'm trying to to work out his motivations. I'm trying to see something, anything on that blank face of his that will give away what's going on in his head or what's going on beneath the surface. And he's given me nothing, nothing to work with at all. There was heavy criticism of Andrew Garfield's performance. But I would say this, at least he is capable of a facial expression that shows one emotion at a time, never mind two. Oh, yeah, he's very conflicted a lot of the way through Amazing. People were complaining that uh, Garfield, we, we mustn't really deal with this till we get to Amazing, but it's important to no, contrast no, the two. That Garfield was, his, his Peter Parker just behaved like a dick. At this stage, Peter's supposed to be behaving like a dick. This is the regrettable stage of, of Spider-Man's career, when he behaved in a way that he will regret later and think, what a dick I was. He's supposed to be a dick who behaves like an idiot, not an idiot who behaves like an idiot. He is lovely in that kind of simpleton way, but the the thing that this reminded me most of was actually Forrest Gump and Jenny. He's sort of going up to her with that sort of like his, his face all going all puppy dog eyed. He's like, oh, hey, MJ. Oh, your dad sure is not happy today for some reason. This kid is a smart, smart kid. He's supposed to be smart. At least... It's because he's socially unaware. doesn't mean that he's not able to at least vaguely pick up on some bad shit. No, but as an audience watching Forrest Gump, you are supposed to understand that this is a terrible, terrible situation that Forrest just doesn't comprehend. With Spider-Man, the... There didn't seem to be enough to say that as an audience, we are supposed to understand that this is a terrible situation because everything is so filtered through Peter. Yeah. So let's cut to the wrestling fiasco. One of my favorite bits of the film that makes no sense whatsoever. Really Uh, doesn't. It really doesn't. Just the confluence of events. He sees that if you wrestle, uh, then you get three grand for, for three minutes. So he goes there and signs up. Or not really signs up. He gets in a queue and says, I'd like to wrestle, please. The woman says, ah, you're going to get torn to pieces. And he goes, no, 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 seriously. And she goes, oh, seriously? Oh, okay, then. And, and signs him up without taking his ID, without actually signing anything. I think she just sort of must write on a piece of paper, dude dressed like a spider. Mm-hmm. No real name. He, as you say, he doesn't sign any disclaimers or anything. And the the reason that this really doesn't work is this is not some illegal backroom <laughs> fight club 
thing. No, this is like this the is... NWA, like a low-rent WWF well, it's or the, WWE. It's the NYWL, which I'm assuming stands for the New York Wrestling League. Yeah, that's a it league. It looks incredibly professional. This is not backyard wrestling. And even then, you still need someone to vouch for you to make sure that you're not some psychopath with a razor blade who's like, oh, I've got a boner for Macho Man Randy Savage. I want to cut him. Yeah, no, you need an agent, somebody who can actually handle this shit. But uh, again, this is 60s comic logic. The original comic was um, you wrestle Crusher Hogan for three minutes, you get $100, which, by the way, is the $100 that, uh, that Peter gets. And in that, he's happy with it. Anyway, um, so, yeah, he turns up, they let him in. Let's just go ahead and say just with the web shooters, fine. He gets in. They lock him in a cage with this guy, no warning. Played by Macho Man Randy Savage. Bonesaw is ready. Love the way he acts this one. Yeah, it is a perfect idea getting an actual wrestler and somebody who's very good at playing to the crowds uh, to, to do this one. Um, and Peter gives his first little quip. That's a nice outfit. Did your husband make it for you? Which you had a problem with because it's homophobic? Well, it's... Yes, oddly, oddly suitable for the wrestling ring, though. Maybe in 2001. I, I think it would be difficult to get away with it and say, oh, well, that's just how that humour rolls yeah. these days. However, there's never really an explanation of the uh, dichotomy between quipping Peter, who turns up rarely in this, and the Peter that we see when he takes off his mask, the blank-faced wan man-boy, played by some sort of blank-slate scarecrow. <laughs> Oh dear. Although one thing I really do like about this scene actually is his outfit. The, the, uh, wrestling outfit that he's cobbled together from bits and pieces and actually looks vaguely realistic. Unlike mm. the mad sewing skills that he suddenly seems to develop and be able to create this lycra monstrosity that's perfectly designed and perfectly <laughs> stitched. And I mean, did he send the plans off to a factory somewhere and say, I would like you to make me this? No, he made it. He, how? Good question. How, how did he this do This also that? applies to Amazing. In the, this, this dates back to the original comic again. 1962, he made it straight after the, uh, the wrestling scenario. Just yeah, that's sewed Although, it together himself. there is a line in the comic that suggests that the reason he's suddenly so good at sewing is because he has spider skills. The spider are very good at spinning webs, and so that makes him good at sewing. Just like... Hmm. There is a Sylvester kind of Stallone a logic in, in that. Demolition Man. But no, this this Peter apparently has been taking textiles technology for the last six years in school. In Ultimate Spider-Man, the comic, they actually they, the the wrestling thing pans out as it would because if you're very visually impressive in the ring, you get success, you get money. They they gave him his spider costume. They said wear this; it'll show it'll be more of a show for the crowds. So that it's explains constructed. everything. Mm-hmm. The only superhero costume obtaining in this vein that makes any sense, frankly, is Kick-Ass ordering it from a... But even that doesn't make sense. It's a wetsuit. It's not a wetsuit, I don't think. It's fabric. It's something that you'd wear when you're sledding or skiing or something. I think it says wetsuit when he orders it. Either way, it would get very, very sweaty and hit overheat and faint. But he does that anyway, yeah. so that kind of works. But it looks ridiculous, and it's supposed to, because he's kick-ass. Mm. But yeah, this is one of those costumes that doesn't really make much sense at all, and it looks like it costs a $1,000 when it's put together, this this actual Spider-Man costume, uh, with its you know special eyepieces. Li- even Lyra said, you know, if he keeps ripping it, he'll run out of money. 
<laughs> if a five-year-old can work that one out. She worked many things out about these films, which are really cool. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Peter gets bilked after he takes out Bonesaw. The guy goes, ah, I'll give you, uh, give you $100 for, for your two minutes. <sighs> this is something that Captain Logan mentioned on uh, his rather incisive YouTube review of Spider-Man. This doesn't make any sense. Why would this wrestling guy not go, kid, you were insane out there. We got to get you back next week. I'll get them to make a costume for you. Instead, he's like, Fuck you, you come in here, you act all awesome, you kick my wrestler's ass, I'm not giving you any money. Why did you put out that ad for the three grand then? What did you expect would happen? Well, he expected that nobody would ever be able to stay in the ring. Did he expect that Randy the Ram would turn up and basically go, I'll take Bonesaw, the 90s sucked. And then there'd be a wrestling match where two big muscly men would punch each other until one of them fell over and the other one pinned. That's not how wrestling works, folks. It's a very carefully choreographed dance. There's an art to it. I'm not going to go on and on about wrestling, but there is a process to it. <laughs> yeah, let's... Again, this is a kid's film, so let's pretend that wrestling's real, shall we? Yeah? And that this guy, despite the fact that wrestling is real, would not want Spider-Man to come back next week and do the same thing again because that would make money. That doesn't make any sense. Here's the other thing, though. Peter stands in front of him maskless. This is like weeks before the actual Spider-Man, a name he's just gone by, turns up in New York. You think this guy's going to forget the kid that allowed the robber who stole the take for that day to get away and said, it's not my problem. You think he's going to forget his face? Or do you think that he's going to be down the police station in a few weeks describing Peter to a T? To a T! Because he stood right in front of him and fucked him over. But again, it's a movie. Don't ask questions. Moving on. Who cares? It's for kids. We care. We care. We're adults. But we're also adults who ask too many questions. Anyway, so yeah, this guy behaves totally unprofessionally, and frankly, Peter is right to go, ah, fuck him. I ain't doing nothing. Uh, in the um, original comic, and it, uh, we keep going back to this Amazing Fantasy 15, but it's nice to be able to go back to the roots and actually compare it to something. Uh, he, the, he actually is successful and says, it's not my problem, because he's successful. Yeah. He gets to go on TV and he's like, ah, that guy, I'm a TV star, I don't need to do this. And it so, makes him act like a jerk. Yeah. This is just a more, a more sharp way of showing bad things are happening and you literally could do something about it, but you're not going to. Because you have become embittered by the fact that the world doesn't give a fuck. And that's the thing. In the original comic, it wasn't that the world doesn't give a fuck. In this, it is seeing the behavior of others and how they can get by going, I don't give a fuck about anybody else but number one, and following their terrible example. And that leads Pete down a dark path. So, yeah, that's actually an excellent addition to it. Even if it doesn't make any fucking sense. It symbolically makes sense. Symbolically, yeah. Then there's the the death of Uncle Ben, which is actually very sad, even if you get to see his great big rubbery face. That's Peter's all blubbing as the... He only actually cries twice in this, but it feels like a lot more. I don't like his crying. Yeah. I, I, it, it sounds like a horrible thing to say, and... and crying on camera and on cue is not an easy thing to do. Andrew Garfield I, managed it really powerfully. True. I understand. I show it by trying not to let people see he was crying. Exactly. That's... By trying to hold it in. That's the balance, emotional. 
the the balance that you strike with um with portraying crying is either you hide it in and you try to control it um or you abandon yourself to it completely and throw yourself face down in the bed and sob mm. and and that those to me carry more emotional weight than just sitting there with, with your, your face expressionless up. face with these two single tears trickling but down your face. Little, little kids, like five-year-olds do that. It's when they get a little bit older. To Like a 10-year-old kid would hide that, would be embarrassed that they were crying, especially a 10-year-old boy. That's a big deal. So Peter's actually at that point regressing to a five-year-old. Mm. But again, I mean, there are, there are scenes that I've seen in films where that has been done and done well. Oh, my God. Is they just sitting there frozen. They didn't read this into it, but basically he has been kept in a state of emotional arrested development since his parents died. Mm-hmm. And a five-year-old. He's he's being brought up in out of context with his generation because although May and Ben are his aunt and uncle, effectively they're grandparents. They are they are older than him by enough that they are not. Uh, they are giving him a previous generation's upbringing. Especially Aunt May in the in the uh, sixty two comic, she's like, I made her weird cakes, and she's like a walking corpse, and she's still alive fifty years later. Those are Whitey's cookies. And her Whitey's cookies. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's death of Ben, very very sad. Um, and we get the CG Peter again; it's all wibbly, and he's jumping up the wall. However, then it cuts to the web swinging, the first proper swing through the city, and this is something that they absolutely get right. This sort of, this, this soaring through the city and the woo of that, that's joyful, that's wonderful, even if the moment itself is not joyful for Peter, it's a moment of pure vengeance. Um, and yeah, that's, that's one thing. That, that and J. Jonah Jameson are the two things I took away from this Spider-Man film, which they got really right, and I love it for. However, they're not exclusive to this film. In fact, well, the web swinging is in all four movies, J.J.'s in three of them. So there's nothing really that this first film has that none of the other ones do. Not even the origin, because that's done twice. I suppose a healthy-looking MJ. Yeah, yeah, she does look vaguely healthy. She is still... There are a couple of shots, though, where she does look painfully thin. Mm. And, and I'm worried about teeth. Kirsten Dunst's teeth. Yeah, she's there's this could be complete coincidence because this isn't the only way that this happens. But there's like a white edge to her teeth, which suggests that they've had acid on them, which is something that can happen um, when people are bulimic. So, yeah, the web swinging uh, is absolutely fantastic and glorious. And then you get the moment of vengeance where Peter uh, allows a, a criminal to trip uh, to his death. And doesn't seem too regrettable about it. Uh, and here we get another link to the Burton uh, universe because the cops make a, a proper appearance in this. And they are like the cops in the Batman films. And that's in the first four Batman films. And that includes the Schumacher ones. These cops are inept and they're wearing like overly stylized cop costumes. None of them talk like real people, much like most people in, in, in these films. And none of them are pr- prey to the restrictions that the police would thus be restricted with again that kind of takes a different turn in uh, amazing where they focus a bit more on the police side of things but not much it's still not the cops in dark knight 
With that particular storyline, though, do you think Captain Stacy would tolerate an inept cop force? It's not so much that they're inept and they're not shown as such, but that they're, they're slightly bumbling. There is no situation the police are in that they could solve what Spider-Man is there to solve. Mm. Spider-Man has to be judged jury and executioner for this criminal at this point, it would appear. Uh, the cops can't, couldn't get to him in time. Although I, I would imagine actually had Spider-Man not turned up, they'd have bundled him off to prison or there'd have been a shootout. And he'd have died anyway. But yeah, the, the point appears to be that the cops are outmoded and, and the firemen are outmoded uh, and uh, that it actually is going to take Spider-Man to save the city of New York. Now, this was being filmed prior to 9-11. I think had 9-11 occurred before the filming, that would not have been their focus. In fact, there is quite a, uh, um, a, a divisive uh, issue of The Amazing Spider-Man, which deals with the uh, two towers going down, and uh, the, the Marvel heroes help to um, get people out of the rubble and lament what's gone on. And the heroes of that story, they make Straczynski makes very, very clear are the emergency workers because he's like, okay, uh, yeah, you, you all read comics for heroes, but this is some real life heroism here. And um, I think that would actually have been the focus had this been made just after 9-11. But again, though, there's another fucking house fire in Spider-Man 2. And the firemen are unable to get people out of it. Ah, good point. Good point. I had forgotten that when I commented that um, there's these firemen with these specialised equipment standing around doing nothing while Spider-Man goes up to rescue people, which is their job. Yeah. <clears throat> Aunt May's constant placations. My God. There's Every time Peter says anything to Aunt May, she pretty much says, don't worry about it. <laughs> which is what happens in the room. There's a bit in Spider-Man 3 where he says, I hit Mary Jane. And this should be devastating to Aunt May because she's basically built up Peter and MJ in her mind as being this perfect little couple that don't exist in the real world where terrible things happen and relationships degrade and people do terrible things. Her first instinct is to say, well, you're going to have to do the unthinkable. You're going to have to forgive yourself. Not, how did this happen, Peter? Talk to me. What's been happening between you and Mary Jane? How could it have gotten so so serious like this what are you okay she just immediately says you gotta forgive yourself don't worry about it but she starts that in this everything he says to her she solves with a little pat on the head and ah well and she's lovely about it and she's kind of like the perfect caricatured picture of an aunt who'll make your cookies and stuff like that but very rarely does she actually seem like a real person the only time she really seems like that is when she goes through money troubles in spider-man 2 Mm. But yeah, most of the time she, she speaks in homilies, basically. Yeah. She's got a, there's a remark in this at the Thanksgiving dinner where, um, she says something about all brilliant men being slobs. Yeah. Now, aside from the fact that this is an excuse that messy people use, there are many geniuses, regardless of gender, who are actually quite tidy and ordered people and have to be in order to be able to get their genius out into the world. Um, but that's, that's just a, a remark that disregards things and sweeps things under the carpet and that is the epitome of may that that she doesn't encourage dealing with anything if she had then peter would have told her he was spider-man ages ago 
very true. But when, the- when she and Ben have that discussion about, I've just lost my job, it's like, like neither of them expected this to happen at any point. Yeah, and I think, I think if I remember rightly, isn't her reaction basically, oh, don't worry, you'll find another you'll one. Find He's another 68 one. years old, mate. He really What's probably isn't. But she's like, don't worry about it. And then, um, when. And this is shown to be a good thing. That's the worst thing about it. It's like, she's a lovely person. She doesn't want people to worry about it, but it's never seen as a character flaw. That's a strength for May in this film. Yeah. And, and she's never, the, the the upshot of this is that she never gets, um, any kind of support and, and, or is ever indicated that she needs it and therefore doesn't come across as a realistic character. After Ben's funeral, Peter is obsessing about his role in this, how he feels about this, the support and emotional backup that he requires because Ben is dead. His wife is sitting next to you, the woman who has been with him through thick and thin for God knows how long. Would you give the woman a hug? This <laughs> is Uncle Ben. <clears throat> I... I really am not keen on Sally Field in Amazing Spider-Man. Ironically, mother of Forrest Gump. She's shrill. She's naggy. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I feel like if I hugged her, she'd splat. But she's a person. Mark Webb has actually gone out of his way that even though she's less pleasant than this caricature of an aunt, she's a real person going through a, a, a period of intense grief and mourning and worrying about Peter. And also, shrill and naggy, while they are uh, unpleasant characteristics and very rarely portrayed as anything, but they are often uh, a shorthand um, that not brilliant writers use to portray some kind of strength in a, a, an older woman. <clears throat> and this version of May does not seem to have that. But, I mean, she's, again, she's the 60s Aunt May. She's the comic Aunt May. She's the Aunt May from the 90s cartoon as well. Yes, that's true. And let's face it, Aunt May had been in a state of that character in the comics and the TV shows for nearly 40 years. She, there's not much for them to work with. My favourite comic series of Spider-Man is, uh, well, Ultimate's up there, but it's actually J. Michael Straczynski's running it from uh, 99 onwards for like uh, six, seven years, I think he worked on it. And um, a lot of people really don't like it. It deals with Peter as an adult, and he's had to move back to the city. Uh, he's broken up with Mary Jane for various traumatic reasons. He talks to Aunt May a lot more. They both become far more uh, characterised. Peter becomes a teacher and has to... Uh, uh, usher and has to mentor kids going through the school, going through what he went through as a kid. And they even bring up the, the fact that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a horrible, um, shooting in the school brought on by the kind of bullying that he went through as a kid, which is a nice observation on the original Spider-Man. Because if you look at that Peter, the way he's going, were it not for the spider bite massacre. Um, even with the spider bite, the way he reacts to the whole TV star thing, yeah. not with Uncle Ben's uh, death, then massacre. Yeah. So, yeah, but but that's interesting. That's an interesting side of... I hate using the word interesting. Hang on. No, no, I can in this point. In this context. In this context, it's okay. I, I, that in itself is an interesting concept. The idea that Peter is a troubled young man. And can become uh, uh, a man who is able to deal with the troubles of others later on. Again, irrespective of the spider suit.
very little ass dwelling in this as well, which kind of... Although that woman does mention, he's got those tight little buns. Yeah, but you don't see them. There's a, actually there is quite a lot of. of There's a crotch shot. In oh god, it's not directly on the spot. It's just more of an inadvertent. There's his crotch. It's when he's hanging under the uh, window when Norman Osborn's looking out just after he's been hanging off the ceiling. Watch out for it. He's smuggling a banana. So would have picked cucumber, I'd say. Carry on. We were talking about the montage and the crime busting and the again the, the the crimes, the amount of bank robberies, jewelry store heists, and things that go on in New York. You'd imagine that before any of the heroes turn up, that maybe these crimes took place. But after a few years, you'd move, you'd stop, you'd go to Iowa and rob jewelry stores there. You wouldn't be in New York where the Avengers live, where Spider Man lives, and the Fantastic Four, and attempt. A petty crime. Also, it's New York. He never deals with a mugging or an assault or. Yeah, he does. Like that, that. There's that. that, that, that uh, he deals with quite a few assaults, uh, but uh, they all tend to be at gunpoint rather than people being beaten. Yeah. Uh, uh, or indeed the Mary Jane scenario. There's that guy who's holding the woman down, taking a person going, ha ha ha. Uh, but again, they're, they're presented in a cartoonish way so that they can appeal to kids. Now, this is something that I decided while I was watching it last night. It is right that Spider-Man should be made as movies to appeal to kids. It would be a grievous oversight for them to make a Spider-Man film just for grown-ups. So Nolan's Batman films are not for kids at all. But if you did that with Spider-Man and you shut kids out almost completely, that is a disservice to a character that, like I've said earlier, is there from the very word go when you're a toddler. That doesn't mean that they can't appeal to adults as well. And there is a really great way of balancing this. Pixar's Incredibles, for example, is an excellent family superhero movie that has something for everyone and manages to keep it so that kids will be as rapt attention as adults. So, for example, when the next Hulk film comes out, I actually hope it's less grown up than the first, the Ang Lee Hulk film. It could hardly be more um, than the first Ang Lee film and less serious and grimdark than The Incredible Hulk I kind of want to see a Hulk that the kids can love. It doesn't need to move in totally simple lines. You can still continue with the through flow of uh, Mark Ruffalo's banner from the Avengers. But a fun Hulk film? Imagine that. It's the tone, though. It's the balance of fun and sad. If you get that right, then you can present that to young children and they will grasp it and they will understand it what i think happens in this which i had a big issue with is that there are multiple occasions where something very serious is happening and it's almost like they've gone well this is the scenario that we want to present rape murder you know whatever terrible thing we think our audience of children will not be able to handle Should we remove that scenario and maybe find something that's a little bit more age appropriate? No, what we'll do is we'll make that scene humorous or we'll make that scene harmless, 
Yeah, just something that will very quickly enable them to switch off from the very real terror and horror that we are evoking in their minds by giving them this particular uh, scene to play out. The one that really hammered it home for me is uh, is MJ's being chased down the alley by the um, uh, by the guys, and I mean the the fact that the lead up to this scene has, is a conversation of such ridiculousness and inanity i mean they right okay this this whole segment is a bit that i have problems with Mm -hmm. from from start to finish so this is the alleyway and the upside down kiss this is it begins it begins when she comes out of the restaurant okay it it begins because of course they intro with my favorite issue you don't waitress in those shoes mj is not stupid she's she's wearing high-heeled strappy shoes to be a waitress in I, I don't even know on what level that works. She then tries to hide the fact that she is a waitress from Peter um, because she's embarrassed about it and she thinks that it's low and demeaning. Looking at the home life that she's come from, you know, she has this very stereotypically trailer trash father. I would say pie restaurant waitressing is something that would give her an opportunity to, to have her own money and have her own support, and which, which is exactly what Peter says. And she kind of falls back on this idea that Harry would think it was low. Then why are you with Harry? Harry is clearly a dick if that is the way he is thinking. And that whole relationship's come completely out of the blue as well. So you've got this situation where MJ has been treated really appallingly and not been able to resolve any of her situation. She's gone from being controlled by her father to being controlled by Flash to now being controlled by this restaurant boss, Enrique. Um, Enrique, and then going on to being controlled by Harry, which is all just set up for her ultimately being controlled by the Green Goblin in the in the climactic uh, hostage scene. And then in Spider-Man 3, controlled by Peter. Yeah, absolutely. He never treats her as anything other than a trophy to be won. And I mean, again, and we've discussed this, there's not a lot to work with uh, with the character. I mean, in, in Spectacular... Let's not forget, by the way, that she also gets controlled by Dr. Octopus and Venom. So it will continue. <laughs> but I'm sure we will come back to that later. Carry on, sorry. But, um, yeah, it's, so in, in Spectacular, which I actually think is a pretty good version of her, she does have a personality. It's not much of one, but she does have a personality. And it, it was actually um, a pretty good reflection, I think, of, of MJ as portrayed at the tail end of the little... Um, Gwen Stacy's death two shot that we read today um, that she is uh, she's had this um, bad home life that's left her with deep-seated self-esteem issues and she compensates for that by being brittle and bright and breezy and um, you know presenting this charming front to the world that is not phased by anything but it is a front and you you start to see cracks in that in the comic and you start to see something of, of a real person coming through um, in when she tries to support Peter after uh, Gwen's died. In this, she is a flag and a motivator. They don't really make any effort to present her as a person in her own right. She just wants to be rescued. And 
they they put her in this child-friendly rape scene, attempted rape scene, in order to to make that clear that what she wants is to be rescued. She's grabbed and groped by five guys with a knife in a dark alleyway, and then we pull back, and the next shot we get of her is in a tight, wet T-shirt with her nipples standing up to attention, Mm -hmm. all aroused and ready to dive on Peter, who is, you know totally engaged in the idea of wow I rescue a girl from rapists and I get hit on and kissed isn't that awesome right traumatized girl here allowing her to kiss you at this point is a foolish way to go forward and it just it's very very ham-fistedly handled and I'm not saying that they couldn't do that scene I'm just saying that, that the tone of it is utterly uncomfortable And Peter meets MJ uh, when she comes out of the diner and she's hiding her shameful waitressing existence beneath her jacket. So when she finally shows it to him, it's kind of like this kind of, hey, honey, you want some pie? And sort of pulling apart the trench coat. And it's, 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 it, for a start, it's massively insulting to anybody who has ever spent a long amount of time as a waiter or waitress. Hands up, folks. Um, but secondly, she wants to be an actress as well. 99% of being an actress or actor, especially in New York, involves doing shit jobs and waiting, waiting, hoping, hoping for that um, call, for that job, for that one possible opportunity. And most people don't make it. And those that do tend to be more talented than MJ. So already we've, we've seen her with you know these incredibly unrealistic views on the world, kind of matching Peter. They're almost perfectly suited to one another in that they both believe that the world is one way when clearly it's another. These are seen more as uh, acute idiosyncrasies rather than actual straight-out crippling character flaws that uh, force them to not be able to progress and exist in this world. But again, you can put this down to the fact that they're teenagers and it's this is the time in your life when you basically get kicked in the bollocks over and over again. And if you can come out the other side thinking anything other than, well, life is just shit then you've won life. That sounds reasonable. It, it also adds a special irony to uh, Pete's comment about Harry doesn't live on a little place I like to call Earth. Neither well, do you, too. Neither do you. <laughs> but his relationship with MJ is this really perplexing kind of... Uh, every time she starts to open up a little bit, he goes, ah, it's none of my business, or uh, he clams up, or um, it's almost like he can only really do small talk. And this very isn't small talk. Very small. This isn't really that um, that, that he do- doesn't really know how to talk to people. It, it just seems to be that he doesn't really regard her as a person. Like I said we, before, he, he is idealizing her to the point where she really needs a friend. She needs someone to talk to, to open up to. He could absolutely have been that friend. But he's objectifying her to the point where uh, she's this. Uh, she's on this pedestal so far above him that he can only gaze upon her loveliness. He kind of needed to be reminded of the reality of her situation, and nobody ever does that. And at the end, when she says, who's the one who's always been there for me? Was he? 
Was he really? I think what she means from that is you made that really, really wonderful speech about how I made you feel. Because this is what it all seems to boil down to. Peter is besotted with MJ and she realises that she wants to be with the man who's besotted with her and loves her unconditionally without really knowing who she is. That's not love. That's obsession. It's also... It could be perceived as another form of rescue. It's it's an escape. Yeah. She's trying desperately to escape her family and then to escape her shitty situation. She goes to Harry. That's not enough of a rescue. Nothing's to MJ's liking. There's always problems, which is ultimately how life should be. I'm dreadfully unsatisfied with life. Every time I go through this, uh, some situation, it's like, oh, everything's conspiring against me. But I'm also aware of how ridiculous I sound at always being that unsatisfied. It's, and also, MJ is oblivious to that. And also, if somebody is going to be there for you, in inverted commas, surely a huge part of that is listening to you and allowing you to work out what your problems are and then doing what that person can to help you to solve them. Not simply responding to everything with, well, that's none of my business. Well, I'm sure that's all fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry he about it. from the best. He did. He is he a did. miniature Aunt May. Marvellous. Do you know who the only person who actually confronts shit was? Uncle Ben. He did. He did attempt to confront shit. He got shot, but hey, he tried. So was that the only time in his life that he said, Peter, you got some shit that needs sorting out, seriously. Let me help um, you. Because from the sounds of... From, it doesn't seem like Pete, that is a natural reaction from Peter. From this Ben, I would say that's probably the first time he's attempted it to any great extent. Martin Sheen's Ben, mm. slightly different, but we'll come to that later. We'll come to those in a minute. <laughs> J. Jonah Jameson. Hey! About this movie. He's not really a character. He's a caricature. He's a cartoon. He's a whirling ball of anger and craziness. And he's great fun and he's funny and he's on screen just enough time for us to always miss him and relish every moment when he is there. But maybe that's why he works in this environment. Like you said, it's very cartoony. It's very bright. It's very big, simple cut, large drawn shapes. And he fits into that very well. Hmm. JJ never really massively interested me in the uh, comics uh, up until this point because he'd always been drawn. It was always frustrating when you're a kid, you're reading old Picklepuss and uh, wondering why he's such an ass. Um, th- there are various things given away about uh, who he is. Never really in these films, any of them. Um, his wife died in a uh, mob-related incident, and it was a masked assassin, so he hates anybody in a mask. To that end, he feels that everybody's uh, hiding secrets. However, uh, subtly, or not too subtly, subtly enough that we didn't notice it until yesterday, he's watching Fox News or something very much like it in his office because the screen behind him, just to his right, or his left, on the right of the screen, um, is about uh, the uh, occurrence of AIDS in the community, 66% caused by gay men, 33% caused by... um, Drug users, 6% caused by accidents involving blood transfusions. In other words, the focus of that particular news article was, it's all your fault, you gay druggies, which makes JJ seem somewhat right-wing. Just a little bit. (laughs) Also, the fact that you've got posters like uh, Gorby out, Boris in, which seems like a very, very 80s 
British red top <laughs> kind of headline. Also, you get Ted Raimi in this office, Sam Raimi. Is he brother or cousin? Uh, I think he's his nephew. He's in all of his films, and he's annoying. <laughs> he was great in Sequest. Well, it was all right. I'll have to take your word on that one. You're never going to watch that, are you? No. no. <laughs> but I suppose the reason he works in these films is uh, because he, he's an excellent foil, a sap for JJ to bully. But he's enough of a gormless, uh, enthusiastic imbecile to keep seemingly bouncing back from it and not really taking any of it to heart. It's a damn shame that Joe Robbie Robertson wasn't given more of a character too, because he's one of the guys who actually sticks up for Spider-Man and stands up to Jonah. But um, I suppose that they express that in a few lines throughout the trilogy. But uh, he's kind of like uh, Jim Gordon in the uh, early Batman films. It's like, oh yeah, he's there too. But he doesn't really do anything. I can imagine, actually, if this was politically charged and they were treating J.J. like an actual character, then the uh, clash of ideologies between the two of them, despite the fact that they're friends and co-workers, would make for some really excellent dramatic scenes, going far outside what Spider-Man does and more to what he represents. Mm. Speaking of what Spider-Man does, Peter turns down... In the same way that Mary Jane doesn't seem to understand what work is, Peter turns down a perfectly good, perfectly suited job working at Oscorp in the science division, which, by the way, would allow him to flex that brain of his that he so rarely employs, which is supposed to be brilliant, though we very rarely see signs of that, because he doesn't design his own web shooters, and he makes stupid decisions. Um, He gets offered it, and he goes, ah, I want to make my own way. Fuck you. Fuck you, Peter. You're living in New York. This is how you make your own way. With connections. That's how you get a decent job. That is making your own way. He got it on the merit of the fact that a friend of his, effectively that's what Norman immediately appoints himself as, is trying to safeguard his future and recognises his scientific ability. I mean, it's all based on sort of, yeah, I did a science paper on this. And Norman's like, brilliant. I think Norman's just a little bit too eager to uh, uh, um, adopt a brilliant son that he can be proud of more than Harry. Uh, There's egotism in there as well, though. It's the fact that uh, that Peter read his work and recognized his genius. Um, That might, in fact, come into play regarding the uh, uh, Goblin's somewhat troubling motivations. Uh, But, yeah, yeah, Peter says, no, I don't want to do that. What he would rather do to make an honest living is lie for his entire fucking career to the Daily Bugle. He presents them with a photograph of Spider-Man and says, I photographed Spider-Man, and they give him money. Now, technically, he did photograph Spider-Man, but the circumstances are ethically troubling. He's supposed to be a journalist and have journalistic integrity. He's lying about the circumstances with which he obtains these photos. Now, why the photographer racket doesn't work in 2002 and certainly not in 2014? The abundance of cell phones, camera phones and surveillance. The mass availability of information means Spider-Man could not string up his camera, photograph himself kicking bad guys' asses without innocent bystanders going click, click. Well, he strung up his own camera. Didn't see Peter Parker anywhere. Okay, right, so we know who Peter Parker is. Spider-Man. End of story. It doesn't fucking work. It did in the 60s when people weren't asking questions and then where there weren't that many cameras around the place and where it was a comic book designed for kids and 
you could make those kind of leaps in logic. It really doesn't fucking work in this. And somehow he gets through the entire trilogy, the entire trilogy with nobody calling this into question. Even Eddie Brock, who has every reason to. Yeah, Peter turns down the ethical uh, science gig and goes instead for a colossal lie. In Civil War, when J.J. finds out about this scenario, when Peter outs himself and, and, and comes out to the world, it is a very tricky situation to be put in. They have to print a massive retraction for years' worth of photographs, and they have to sue Peter for millions of dollars for fabrication and breach of contract and perjury and all kinds of other shit, which basically entails lying. And I think Tony Stark is able to foot the bill or something because Peter wasn't ruined. But, um, oh yeah, I think, I seem to remember the, uh, they rejigged the timeline so that no, but no one knew that Peter was Spider-Man because they couldn't work their way out of that hole. Brilliant. Brilliant. <clears throat> But yeah, that's, that's what I mean. This is a serious goddamn situation. And it's one that when Peter first presents it, he's not even thinking it through. This is something he's going to be locked into. Because it is a, a, a paper trail to who he is. What he really wants is to get recognition and payment for being Spider-Man. He wants to be retained by the city. So this is his strangulated route to that. So he doesn't want to really get merit for being Peter Parker and a smart kid and into science. He wants to get merit for being, and money, and payment, and a career for being Spider-Man. Might I suggest joining the police force? Yeah. But then again, I mean, he's got these abilities, and it's hard. But it would be easier to (laughs) conceal those abilities um, and simply use them. We're talking Dexter here. Uh, well, I'm, I'm just, he doesn't have to use the costume, does he, in, in those circumstances? He he goes into a situation where a he's been called out story, by the way. Like to it. attend a crime scene or a, a crime in progress or something of that nature. He's a bit faster than everyone else. He's a bit stronger than everyone else. He's a bit more agile than everyone else. But if he stays in uniform, he basically gets to catch the bad guy, um, be adored, um be appreciated, get paid. Now, and I'm not saying, by the way, that this is what happens with cops, that they are all adored and appreciated. Of course, that's not... And of course, everything will be peachy with him and MJ, because as we all know, cop marriages last forever. Well, indeed. But at least he would be in a situation where he could be a bit more upfront about what he wants to do. If he wants to take responsibility and he wants to help people, there are worse ways to do it. Hmm. Like I said, it's an Elseworlds novel, but then you don't have a Spider-Man. Yes. Um, so yeah, let's cut to the parade and the showdown and the big stuff that goes on and you got, uh, the costume turns up for the first time properly. I mean, you got a few flashes of it before when he turns up and Norman Osborn destroys the people. We could talk about Norman Osborn here as well and his motivations and what he's going through. As I understand it, he is getting a divergent schizophrenic personality that is deciding to do things without his dominant, um, regular personality knowing about it and eventually introduces himself via the mirror uh, to remind him that he is doing these things uh, again like with uh, Two-Face it seems like he's this version of Norman's been in there all the time it just took a, a, a truly traumatic and substance based event to draw it out of him mm. I, I would say that if it's um it's a very old-fashioned interpretation of 
uh, schizophrenic response. Mm-hmm. Um, but there does certainly seem to be an element of I, – I don't even think you could really call it multiple personality disorder or, or divergence or anything like that because it's, it seems to be very much who he really wants to be. He's not creating this personality to get away from anything. It seems more that this is who um, he's – tried to keep hidden from everybody all along and the introduction of the drugs just made it impossible for him to do that he's not a nice guy even in the first scene where he first meets peter there are elements of um his attempts to control harry and um to control the image that he puts out to the world Hmm. so when we get to the actual parade fight there was one thing that this reminded me of when I was watching it as a uh, when it first came out, and it still reminds me to this day. There weren't that many reference points for non-martial arts-related superhero-type films that this could really take its cue from in terms of action. It had to really set the tone. And what the combat in Spider-Man most reminds me of when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, is a more brutal version of Power Rangers. If you actually look at the the way the Power Rangers fights go on, the um, talking to each other in costumes without the lips moving, because by necessity it was uh, adapted from um, Japanese TV shows, coupled with the acrobatics and the uh, uh, quick cuts, especially with Norman Osborn's costume, which is ridiculous, especially by today's standards. It looks like Power Rangers. I saw um, concept art of the original Goblin costume as it was devised, and it looked far closer to the uh, one from the comics, and it was um, much more creepy, and it had the purple hood, and it was a rubber mask, and um, the potential for this to look ridiculous in, in front of the parade in broad daylight was high. But it looks ridiculous anyway. So it's almost like they went um, for, we're not going to try and make this scary. It'll just be scary what he says and what he does, rather than trying to make him appear straight out scary. I think you're right. If they were trying to dodge a bullet on that one, it, the the armor makes sense, especially when you put it in context of the glider. Mm-hmm. But the mask? Well, they explain that away by the fact that Norman collects masks. Would it not have made more sense for him to have taken one of his favorite masks from the wall, a wooden one maybe, yeah. and just wear that? Could they have incorporated that? I mean, he actually had to fabricate that mask. It took a while. Because again, if, remember that the the dude on the glider is you know just wearing these sort of like sunglasses. Yeah, and again, it it suggests that this um, uh, drug induced haze of violence and aggression that Norman has gone through has bestowed upon him the same kind of metallurgy skills that Peter's spider bite has conveyed in terms of textile construction. Maybe so. And is the mask metal, do you think? It looks metal. There's there's that sheen on it. I did like the fact that they'd incorporated the purple and the green in Mm. the sense that it's that kind of... if you turn it one way, it's green. If you turn it another way, it's got the purple sheen over it. It's not just an inert mask. It has gadgety eyes and might, I would imagine some sort of tracking uh, technology in there so that he's able to pilot his glider. Yeah, maybe so. It's effectively a very basic Iron Man suit. Ooh, good point. And he's able to control the glider from the actual circuitry in his arms and, yeah. I wouldn't go so far as to say I hate this costume, but it's in the lower end of um, uh, the superhero and villain realisation on screen for me. It looks stupid, and he's not threatening. So, 
as a result, they have to go overboard in what he's actually saying with his threats, and it becomes uh, thinly veiled threats of sexual violence, which is going too far. Going to the goblin's motivations, what does he mean by join me? This is something, again, that um, uh, Captain Logan brought up. What does the goblin really want to do? He and Spider-Man, now that he's destroyed his shareholders, which Spider-Man was unable to prevent him from doing, and thus makes Spider-Man seem kind of inept, What A, why does he hate Spider-Man so much? B, why does he want to destroy Spider-Man so much? C, what does joining him entail? D, what's his ultimate goal? I don't think any of that is really made entirely clear. I think you could probably um, explain it away with a shrug and crazy, but that actually um, that, com- that that trickles away everything that you'd built up about this guy, this this villain having actual motivations. Mm. Well, his comment about um, you know we could just keep beating each other up while innocent people die. It does have weight. It does, but. It seems like a lie. It seems like something that he's throwing in there in order to tempt Peter, who is obviously intending to help people, not harm them. He personally, Norman personally, does not appear to have any motivations that are connected with protecting the little guy. He wants his corporation back. He wants to be uh, unrestrained from doing everything that he wants to do. He seems to have – if he's motivated by anything – um, it f- seems to fall more in the category of uh, unrestrained impulse. And he doesn't understand why he should be curbed. If we get down to what Norman himself wants when he's at his most lucid, he appears to want his company f- to do well and for him to be top dog and head of the business and for him to not have to deal with the, the rest of the board who it would appear edged him out. And that actually, I think in the same way that Dr. Evil's um, front business of Starbucks is far more profitable than, than holding the world to ransom with a nuclear warhead, it seems like once he's destroyed the shareholders, just that's it. You're done. Go back. Be Norman Osborn. I suppose you could argue that there's an element of wanting things for Harry. What, like his massive, massive empire? Yeah. Send it down the right track, and he's getting near retirement age anyway. Retire. Spend some time with your son. Yeah. Doesn't make any fucking sense. It seems to be about control. He was going to have the control of the company wrested from his grasp and was going to be shoved out in the cold. And we can all relate to how shitty that would make us feel. Uh, but then when he gets it back, it, it just becomes about destroying Spider-Man. Why? What, what offends him so much about Spider-Man? It could be that, you know, Peter said no to him and he wants to make it on his own. But he's already said he respects that. It reminds him of him. So which is it, Norman? And this is before he finds out that Spider-Man is Peter. Which, by the way, he jumps from 1 to 12 on. Mm-hmm. He doesn't actually seem to be all that fussed about knowing who Spider-Man was. Do you know why? Because he had the opportunity to take off Spider-Man's mask and didn't. So what does it matter if it's Peter or not? There doesn't appear to be any one major thing about Peter Parker which incenses him so much. You know, we offered you uh, our friendship and you spit in our face. That appears to be his, this is why I'm doing this to you, Peter. Mm. But 
Considering what he did, how he did it, and the way he propositioned Peter in the first place, it is a ridiculously unrealistic expectation to imagine anyone would go, yeah, all right, I'll join you in doing whatever you want to do, despite the fact that it's not actually been placed on the table what you want to do. Again, Norman has no clear end game here, or next step. In finding out uh, through his suspicions uh, and the, the Thanksgiving fiasco that Peter is Spider-Man, uh, he is then tormented by his own mask, who comments that the cunning warrior attacks neither body nor mind, but the heart. No, 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 no. The honorable warrior attacks the body. The cunning warrior attacks the mind. The ruthless warrior attacks the heart. When it comes down to it, the only warrior who attacks the heart is the sadist, the one who wants to utterly destroy. And that's not based on cunning. That's based on a psychotic need to fulfill something, some kind of internal validation. That's not cunning at all. That's the opposite of cunning. It's, it's psychotic behavior. And so to his son, who is Harry Osborne in Spider-Man 1? And I say that specifically for Spider-Man 1 because he changes throughout the series. He goes through an arc. He does. I think the flaw with Harry here is that he is given a semblance of a, a tragic character mm-hmm. in, in basis. He is clearly feeling abandoned by his father. Um, you can see in his behavior towards MJ that he has been very badly brought up in terms of his understanding of, of people and how they work. He tries to throw money at things to fix them. Mm. And then he gets a moment of attempted redemption where he gets to express that all of this is because he is so desperate to connect with his father. So I actually think, yeah, having said that, I started saying that this is a flaw, but in context of the rest of this film, he's got more to him. Mm. In terms, in terms of uh, layers, not necessarily in terms of of what goes on with him, but in terms of different levels of of who he is and how he his outlook on the world works, he's got more to him than Peter. Yeah, that actually maintains throughout the series. But having said that, James Franco seems miserable in this role and sort of mooches around the uh, the screen, making foolish teenage decisions again. And specifically at Thanksgiving, when Norman behaves like a living shit to Mary Jane. Shut your mouth about my father. If I'm lucky, I'll be half the man he is. And this, wow, you are fucking deluded, son. But it seems like he's genuinely lacking a contrasting view in his life to say your dad really isn't the man you should be following the role model. And of course, Peter takes no responsibility for it. Never attempts to talk to Harry about it before the big finale, the unhappy event with Norman Osborn and sure as shit doesn't try and talk to him about it later. It would appear that neither does MJ either, despite the fact that they ostensibly have this relationship going on it doesn't seem to go much beyond him taking her out for dinner and buying her things she won't even kiss him at the parade it's like well we can't actually see have mj be seen to be kissing someone else certainly not harry no 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 then why bother having them date so that there could be some pressure on peter because he didn't act and his inaction has led to the girl that of his dreams Dating someone else. Oh, perish the thought. Someone else who happens to be rich. There you go, Pete. He's everything you're not. No, he just has money. 
But Harry's pretty decisive as well. He tends to go after what he wants, and that, again, maintains throughout all three of them. He does a bit of Hamlet brooding from uh, two through uh, three and going, oh, I need to punish Peter, but I don't know what to do about it. But then that whole thing breaks down. Talk about that later. But again, he's got far more of an arc and is actually a lot more watchable than Maguire. But in this first one, he just seems to be sort of doing a sort of tragic James Dean. Franco did go on to become much better. Yes. yeah. In terms did. of acting. Was this one of the earliest things he's done? Uh, I think his breakout performance was in um, Freaks and Geeks. So, uh, Aunt May is hospitalised by the Green Goblin, uh, who clearly doesn't go too much after the heart. If he was really going after the heart, he'd have straight out killed Aunt May. But, of course, we can't have that in a kid's movie. Uh, so, then Peter breaks out the Harlequin romance. And I think when I first saw it, I was like, oh, that's really sweet. Every time I've seen it, subsequently, I vomit up a vat of syrup. This is an awful scene. He's lisping this stuff that, again, he's talking about her like she's a concept rather than a person. It's really creepy as well. He's, if you listen to what he says to her, what he's basically saying is, MJ, you are a mirror who reflects back at me all the wondrousness that I never thought I could be. That utterly disregards that there is anything to her. Yeah. And also he doesn't really know her because then he'd have included... Um, parts about who she actually is as a person. Mm. But yeah, but he, he reels that one off and MJ realises that no one's ever spoken to her about her in that way. And because MJ is infantilised throughout these movies and because MJ is shown to be repeatedly, unutterably self-absorbed, if not necessarily selfish, entirely interested in how the world relates back to her like a toddler she responds well to this it's funny he saved my life twice and I've never even seen his face wow him <laughs> you're laughing oh, no, I, I understand he is extremely cool but do you think it's true all the terrible things they say about him no no not Spider-Man, not a chance in the world. I know him a little bit. I'm sort of his unofficial photographer. Uh, has he mentioned me? Yeah. What'd he say? Uh, I said... Uh, he, he, he asked me what I thought about you. And what did you say? I said... Uh, Spider-Man? I said... Uh, the great thing about MJ is when you look in her eyes and she's looking back in yours, everything feels not quite normal because you feel stronger and weaker at the same time. You feel excited and at the same time terrified. The truth is you you don't know 
way you feel. Except you know what kind of man you want to be. It's as if you've reached the unreachable and you weren't ready for it. You said that? Oh, something like that. But I can't dislike her as a person for those things. I can't feel anything about her as a person in this because she isn't. She's more of a device. Yeah. So anyway, uh, speaking of which, she gets kidnapped and uh, held on top of the uh, George Washington Bridge and uh, Goblin says, you've got to make this choice and Spider-Man turns up and he makes the choice. And uh, it wasn't until yesterday's screening that I realized how significant this choice is. If you go back and read uh, Amazing Spider-Man 121 when Gwen Stacy gets killed, it's an accident because she gets knocked off while the Goblin's swooping around, but it's not a straightforward, I'm going to drop her, drop, and you couldn't save her scenario. It's far more messy than that. He also drops this cable car full of kids and says, you've got to make a choice between the man, Peter Parker, the man, the boy, the child, the old man, um, who loves Mary Jane more than life itself, and your duty as Spider-Man to save these people who are otherwise helpless. And Peter chooses both, which is in itself a choice. He chooses to sacrifice his harmony by forcing himself for the rest of his life to juggle the Spider-Man identity with his real life, with his civilian life, which is perfectly emblematic of the character and they absolutely nailed. But the fact that he makes the choice to attempt both and succeeds is counter to how Spider-Man works as a, a an ongoing character. Yeah. Because the whole point of him having to juggle this personal life and, and career or school life and uh, being Spider-Man and the responsibilities that he feels that he has is he can never do anything completely successfully. He's always got to offset one against the other and something always suffers. In fact, in most cases, everything suffers. Yeah. That's the tragic appeal of him. If he wins... If he risks all to try and save everybody and the worst he gets out of it is a bit of rope burn, what does that tell you? It also struck me that of all the costume crime fighters, Peter's secret identity is the most important to him simply because he's got so many people close to him that don't know about Spider-Man or that do know about Spider-Man but are in danger and he has such a rogues gallery of overly sadistic antagonists who would wreak vengeance upon him in a personal way. It's more than Superman. It's more than Batman by far. It's more than Daredevil. Any superhero you can name doesn't have as much to lose as Peter because he has love. And having those entanglements and those relationships with people that even like he even grows to really become close friends with Flash. And the more friends he gets and the more love he has, the more danger is present in his life. And that makes the mask all the more important. And so it's more of a balancing act. It's more of a juggling act. And it's it's Peter constantly walking the tightrope. Because he has more to lose. Yeah. And also he doesn't have the means that 
numerous of those other superheroes have mm. in order to assist with protection. Many of them have money. They can afford security. Many of them have teams. They have backup. There are other people that can support them. Yeah. Or they're in a situation where the people that they love and care for have powers of their own and therefore to some extent are able to protect themselves. Or they're so stupendously powerful that they can pretty much deal with everything. Peter always doubts his ability to muster to any given dire situation. Yeah, and again, this all comes back to this idea that he is representative of the the adolescent dilemma that it's a it's a point in his life that he is going to be stuck at for a long, long time, but that he um, he symbolises perfectly the self doubt, um, the uh, the feeling that everything that happens is his fault, that there is he can never be good enough to offset any of this, that he will always be in some way inadequate, and yet to take that responsibility and to keep trying anyway yeah and it's that love he has for other people and that the, the uh the, his close friends and family and the love that they have for him and the fact that he is constantly stymied and he's constantly stumbling but keeps getting up each time that makes him so endlessly re-engaging as a character that doesn't date because love doesn't date it the concept of uh, of love may fall out of fashion and be sneered at, but love itself is so endemic to being human. Ah, that's why that opening line is so crucial and yet so hollow. This story is about a girl. It's not about a girl. It's about what the girl represents. Yeah. And you said also that he doesn't really understand what the responsibility that he really has is. Yeah, that that was something that he keeps coming back to this idea of great power equals great responsibility. But he never actually seems to take the time to work out what responsibility means in this context. What is he taking responsibility for? What are his responsibilities? You could argue that his responsibilities to his loved ones are to abandon the idea of being Spider-Man, uh, Spider-Man, uh, to abandon the idea Wait of being... Wait for the clone saga. <laughs> to abandon the idea of being Spider-Man and protect them. Or is it that he has this responsibility to protect the city, which becomes less and less of an issue when you start introducing things like the Avengers, like the Fantastic Four, when he has to accept the fact that it's not just all on him. What are his responsibilities? Why doesn't he sit down and try and work out what they are? I think when it boils down to it, it, it comes down to the scene in Spider-Man 2 and the scene in The Incredibles when both uh, Bob and Peter are looking at a man being beaten up in an alley. Their responsibility extends to the fact that they need to step in and do what they can to make that stop. And in both cases, in Peter's case, he's decided not to be Spider-Man and his powers are failing anyway. And in Bob's case, he is held back by his uh, the secrecy of his life and unable to act upon that. In terms of responsibility, it's simply lending a hand when you can, where you can. The reason that Peter is amazing and spectacular is that he extends that responsibility far out over the entirety of New York City and tries to safeguard the whole of it. It also, that idea provides uh, a, a concept for the responsibility of the bystander if anybody sees that kind of thing going on where where do your responsibilities for 
preventing harm to others begin and end? Does it just come down to capability because so many people would just walk away without even the simple act of making a phone call to the police? Yeah. But that's another regrettable instance in Spider-Man 2 mirroring his dickish behaviour in Spider-Man 1 and Amazing Spider-Man. It's something that he can look back on and go, why didn't I just do something at that point? So he fights the goblin. It's absolutely brutal. And uh, this got a 12A and rightfully so. Um, and the goblin again brings in the notion of sexual violence to which uh, he can threaten uh, uh, Peter with. His mask gets ripped off. And in all the Spider-Man films, uh, this happens because you have to be able to emote with him and see his eyes at the end. They've never really had the moxie to just go, you know what, we're going to keep this mask on and see if we can get get Spider-Man himself as a character to maintain this without bringing out Peter. It also doesn't really help in these because you might be able to see his face, but if his face isn't really doing anything. (laughs) True. So the goblin uh, tries the old backstab on him, gets stabbed in the balls with a giant spiky glider. And says, don't tell Harry. And this has frustrated me since the moment I saw it. Because I thought, why not? This is the time when you do tell Harry. This is the time when you actually take responsibility. You admit the terrible things you've been a part of, but you also help your friend through what's about to become the worst time of his life and help him come to terms with the fact of who his father really was. You deal with the truth. And the fact that Peter doesn't, makes him a chicken shit. And he can he can tell himself that it's, oh, I was trying to be respectful of Harry, I don't want to... It would break him off if he knew that his father was the Green Goblin, because that's the thing. If you, you don't tell Harry that I was the Green Goblin, and just also take responsibility for my murder. And because of this, this, this dreadful seed is sown in Harry of... Um, of resentment and hatred and and he wants to hurt somebody and he wants to strike out against a world that took his father away and Peter just gives him a target because Peter doesn't understand people and he sure as shit doesn't understand Harry but interestingly it feels like this should have led up at some point in Spider-Man 3 to Peter beating himself up over this indecision or lack of, uh, of moving forwards or that he made what he thought was a good call at this point and he now sees as a bad call. Well, if you look at what his calls are through this, this sequence of events, his call is actually to do nothing. Yeah. He, the, the fight with the goblin, while it's supposed to be this big emotional and, and um, uh, action climax, again, reading the 73 comics today... The comparison makes this look very weak because there isn't really any emotional depth to it. In that one, Peter is beating himself up about the fact that he has gone all out on this revenge trip and wants to tear the goblin to pieces. Mm. And he has a moment of clarity and realizes that he can't do that because that's not who he is. He's making a very definite, positive choice about how he is going to progress as an individual and as a person. Yeah. In this, he basically just stands there and fails to act until the goblin's dead by his own hand. His only real action is to get out of the way. 
And when presented with the option of whether or not to uh, reveal anything to Harry or address the situation with Harry, even in a subtle way, help him to get through the death of his father, even without saying, oh, by the way, he was the goblin and, um, you know, therefore he deserved everything he got. You don't have to do it like that, but he does nothing. He just takes the path of not even least resistance, just the one that involves standing there keeping your mouth shut. Also, this is one of the oldest cliches in the book. The hero beats the villain. The villain appears to be down. The hero decides not to kill the villain and walks away going, no, 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 I'm a better man than you. The villain reaches for a concealed weapon, in this case a glider. If he'd had an actual choice to make at this point with genuine consequences, it would have been a case of, Peter, help me. You've got to bring me back from this. And Peter deciding, no, fuck you, Norman. I'm out of here. and walking away. And then Norman blowing himself up for that to have been the repercussions of it. There was no choice really to be made here. It's basically, do you, do you let this guy pull the wool over your eyes again and try and punk you or not? And he chooses not only through his spider sense. It's not really yeah. a conscious decision. He just no, it's out not. Away. It's it's a reaction of impulse. Yeah, he doesn't really know what he's leaping no. out of the way of. But the that. real choice ultimately comes down to: Do I honour this man and uh, try to do the best uh, for him, by him and by his son, um, and, and not tell Harry? Which you know is a head-slapping, fucking stupid mistake uh, from uh, hindsight. But we've all made those. And also the fact that the way they've transposed what the goblin has done that has made Peter so angry because it's gone from a a scene in which the woman he loves is accidentally killed because as you said it's not something that that, uh, although the goblin was threatening to do it as circumstances turned out that's not quite what happened it wasn't Mm. a deliberate act he didn't pick her up and snap her neck he knocked her off the roof accident Um, and then, but then to make that... The bridge, you know, not the roof. The bridge, sorry. But then to move that on to, well, we don't want MJ to die in this because that would be far too bleak. What we are going to do is have him basically threaten to rape her to death. And that's such a terrible thing that that gets Peter incredibly Not upset. just rape her to death. He pulls out a big old three-pronged spear implying even more yeah. despicable sexual violence than that. It really does. Yeah. Um, to be able to go... But basically, somebody who threatens that, somebody who thinks like that, to then move to a scene in which you are honouring the last wishes of that particular person. <laughs> are you fucking mental, Peter? Those wishes were not from the right-minded head. It's very difficult to come back from that to, well, he was a good man, really. Um, <laughs> yeah. So then cut to the funeral and, uh, uh, Harry doing his James Dean thing. I'll oh, make Spider-Man pay. At that point, Peter should have taken him aside and gone, whoa, 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 whoa. You hate Spider-Man now? Of course I hate Spider-Man. He killed my father. Yeah, you and me, we's, we's got to have words. Okay. Mm-hmm. Free up some time this afternoon. But no, instead, um, Peter goes, hmm. That seems like a bad situation. Don't worry about it. Absolutely. And doesn't touch it. And then MJ, I shall choose to do nothing. Sweep and, it under the rug. And then MJ opens up with a her best speech in the entire film, despite the fact that it's contradictory. You make me feel 
uh, like I'm better than I could ever be, like I'm just me, and that's okay. She's saying that she's better than she could ever be, so better than she could ever be, but she, she's just her. So effectively, she's saying that she's at zero, and that's better than she ever thought she could be. Well, and it makes her feel zero. I actually think that works for MJ in the context of you're just the first uh, guy who doesn't make me feel like shit. Yeah, you're the first guy who doesn't drag me down to minus twenty. Do you know how fast Peter had to run to get her off of just running backwards on the spot? <laughs> What's he going to take to validate this woman? But again, what has he ever really done? What interaction have they ever Fawned really had? Her. Again, she's not really reacting to him as a person. She's reacting to the way he reacted to her. So you get to be the most wonderful man in the history of the universe by not being a complete and utter royal shit. Well done. Come back with the old Harlequin romance crap. I love lap that up. So yeah, right, she's going to adore Fifty Shades, isn't she? I don't know. It, it's a, it is actually a nice scene, and she uh, danced handled. It is her best bit of acting, and she's very open and she opens up at this point, and I do like it, even though it does say terrible things about MJ that need to be discussed and not ignored. That scene, that single scene, is the best bit of characterization for both of them, in my opinion. Mm. Especially because that's his decision. He's like, right, you know, th- this woman, I really do owe it to her to be nothing to do with her in terms of Spider-Man. I have to separate these two parts of me. And th- it's, it is a bittersweet downbeat ending, which they didn't have to do. But it's, again, it's Peter's good intentions, and it's a, it's a suitable ending and one of the strongest of, uh, of the, the various superhero films because it really commits to this idea, at least for the time being, uh, that he's actually going to sacrifice something to be who he has to be. There's something I've been wanting to tell you. When I was up there, and I thought I was going to die... There was only one person who I was thinking of. And it wasn't who I thought it'd be. It was you, Pete. I kept thinking, I hope I may get through this. So I could see Peter Parker's face one more time. Really? There's only one man who's always been there for me who makes me feel like I'm more than I ever thought I could be that I'm just me and that's okay the truth is I love you All I wanted was to tell her how much I loved her. I can't. You can't what? Tell you... Everything, I mean... There's so much to tell. 
Yeah. There's so much to tell. I want you to know that I will always be there for you. I will always be there to take care of you. I promise you that. I will always be your friend. Only a friend? Peter Parker? That's all I have to give. There's that brilliant iconic scene where he's walking away from her she realizes he's spider-man and let's not mince words okay that realization shot where she's like oh my lips that's spider-man's lips she knows he's spider-man which means she knows he's spider-man in two so she tortures him in two repeatedly by going yeah you're late I, i i guess you have an excuse so everything is informed in two by the fact that mj knows so when it's revealed that he's spider-man at the end her look is not one of, oh my god, he's Spider-Man, but, oh, so I can't just lie about that anymore to myself and to him. Although it could be argued that it's also a sequence of occasions where Peter is given the opportunity to tell her the truth and fails to do so. Tell her the truth! No way! Absolutely. Like a person, so she can make informed decisions, like a person. Also, you need to talk about being Spider-Man to someone, for the love of God. I actually had an idea for a two or three line conversation that they could have inserted into this film at almost any point Mm -hmm. that would have completely changed the dynamic of their relationship, still kept the same bittersweet ending, Mm -hmm. um, but made Peter seem significantly less oblivious um, and MJ seems significantly less um, vacuous for no reason. All they have to do is make it clear, probably some point after he's rescued her the second time, that she falls for him because he can save her. And he realises this. And he chooses not to pursue a relationship with her because he doesn't want for all she wants about him to be the saviour syndrome. That's way too complicated for family audiences. In the minds of, of the average screenwriter, they they might put that in a Pixar movie, but they would not put that in this. Now, the Spider-Man films move in very broad brush strokes, the first three. Um, I agree that would be great because it makes them much more complex characters and, and their needs are seen as strengths and flaws. Yeah, indeed. And you you don't even have to put that much extra in there to make that the situation. But yes, you're right. Broad strokes, so broad, I can't see the edges of <laughs> The choice is made at the end. You get that iconic shot where he's walking away and it's really excellently framed. And wearing that coat, he actually looks like a man for the first time in the film and maybe the only time in the trilogy. I don't know what Maguire's best bit of acting is. I do know that that's Dunst's. And of course, the choice being made with the best of intentions and then it goes to shit for the second one. He, he had no clue what, that life was going to get in the way quite so much. I think he was preparing himself for it. But ultimately, you can't actually decide. You can't actually decide to just be Spider-Man because you got to pay the bills. So his decision is, I'm going to be Spider-Man. And 
somehow it'll work out. Effectively, what he really needed was uh, a steady job, again, unconnected, but one that would take up some of his time, what, a lot of his time during the day, and then for him to operate at night on certain elected days or something like that. I don't know. He needed to, well, basically, Peter needs to organize himself, and that much is abundantly clear in Spider-Man 2. We'll talk about that soon. Couple of hidden things. The Evil Dead car turns up in almost all of the Sam Raimi films, and it's uh, Uncle Ben's car in this. Uh, if you've seen Evil Dead, you'll know which one I'm talking about. One of Spider-Man's prototype outfits that he draws in his uh, notepad has the Black Widow symbol on it. Because it's, of course, a Black Widow spider actually has that thing on it. Um, there's also an Electra poster in Peter's bedroom. Are we to understand here that there are Marvel comics in this universe? In which case, why is one of the most famous Marvel comics not in this universe? Yeah. Uh, fortunately, they didn't really focus on it too much, so it doesn't become a real problem. Bruce Campbell is in this as uh, the wrestling commentator. My theory is it's actually the same guy across all three films, jumping from different job to different job and always presenting Spider-Man with a hurdle to jump over. A giant acting chin, occasionally with a pencil-thin moustache. At one point, Norman Osborn, I think it's at Thanksgiving, is wearing a Gryffindor tie. Gryffindor! Which is, of course, bollocks, because he'd be a Slytherin. Absolutely. In the Daily Bugle, they mention that Eddie Brock is uh, has been working on it. Well, they, sorry, they mention Eddie's been working on it for weeks. And in Spider-Man 3, Eddie Brock comes along, and it seems like Jonah's never met him before. So I'm assuming they're talking about a different Eddie, even though that's clearly a reference to Eddie Brock. Is it the Macy's Day Parade with Macy Gray? Yes. So is it the Macy Gray Parade? <laughs> this is music that old people listen to and think that they're being young and hep. My sister listens to Macy Gray. She also listens to this podcast. Does she still listen to Macy Gray? I don't know. I will ask her. Also at the Macy Gray Parade, Suntory time on the uh, Suntory whiskey. This is before Lost in Translation, but the Green Goblin's about to turn up and make sure that a relaxing time is not Suntory time is not had by all. And finally, you notice this, when that really romantic uh, uh, upside-down kiss happens, uh, MJ unrolls his mask and puts it over his nose. It's wet. It's wet through and getting wetter by the second. She's waterboarding him. Mm -hmm. You know, because if you kiss someone, they have to breathe through their nose. Yep. But, I mean, that actually had to have happened. So, what, did Maguire just hold his breath or... I don't know. I don't even know if that was Maguire. Was it actually him or was it a stuntman? Stunt mouth. It was a dummy. His neck looks awful because, of course, all the blood will be rushing to his head at this point. Yeah. And we will, of course, talk about Spider-Man 2 next week in the run-up to The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So thank you very much, Sharon, for being on this show. It was one that I've been planning to do for a long, long time because this character means quite a lot to me, as you folks may have noticed. In all seriousness, it achieved everything it set out to achieve. It, it, the fact that people didn't notice or really care about the uh, shortcomings back in the day, and most of them don't care now, uh, would st- speak very highly of what they actually did achieve with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, as you said at the beginning, it really kick-started the whole superhero mainstream. We can make a shed load of money out of this. Let's make more of them. Mm. Um, ethic. In Hollywood, which without which resent it sometimes, though we may, because it results in some shit, we wouldn't have the Avengers. We wouldn't have just had Captain America 2 Winter Soldier, which was awesome. 
Okay, so that is it from us. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And neural, neural handshake, handshake complete. complete. Whatever life holds in store for me, I will never forget these words. With great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift, my curse. Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. And then, of course, there's Hero by Chad Kroger. Years from now, our grandchildren will ask us why we liked this guy, and we'll say, I don't know. Just listen to the lyrics on this one and ask yourself, who's singing it, and what does it actually mean?